I tested once in the laboratory an 81-year-old gentleman. thought, boy, you, you've been doing sports all your life, right? So, man, you, you chose the right lifestyle, right? And he told me, actually, no. Actually, until I was uh, in the uh, early 50s, uh, I was obese. I was hypertensive. I used to smoke. Uh, I had a very poor lifestyle. I didn't exercise at all. And one day I started to ride and, and bike and, and think about life and things like that. And ever since then, this was an individual, the early 50s, uh, uh, sedentary, very poor, uh, healthy lifestyle. And then, boom, you know, 30 years later, at 81 years old, his metabolic health was some of that of someone in their 30s who's healthy. That's unbelievable, uh, hard to believe. And, and this is how... That, that person, obviously, 81-year-old, that's an example of what exercise can do for your longevity, right? That person was not on any medication. Hey, friends. In today's conversation, I sit down with Inigo San Milan, PhD, from the University of Colorado to talk about exercise, specifically moderate-intensity cardiovascular training, otherwise known as Zone 2 training, and how this type of exercise affects metabolic health. This episode is extremely detailed, which is exactly what I had hoped for. Dr. San Milan is one of a few across the globe who is truly an expert in this field of science. We're very lucky to have had this time with him, so I wanted to ensure we went deep on a topic that is absolutely critical to optimizing our health span and longevity. If you do want to skip through some of the more nerdy scientific basis for Zone 2 training and jump straight to the practical stuff, fast forward to about 90 minutes into this conversation where we begin talking about how an individual can set up Zone 2 training. I will also be doing a follow-up episode with Drew Harrisburg, exercise physiologist and regular guest on The Proof, to further summarize the practical takeaways from today's episode on Zone 2 training. So no stress if things don't land the first time. It's a lot to take in over one conversation. I hope you enjoy it. This is me and Inigo San Milan, PhD. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, 
you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Something that I think we'll talk about at various points today is metabolic health. Mm-hmm. What is what is your definition of metabolic health and, and why should the listener care about this? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think this is this is something that we're um, understanding more and more, right? As as as, as you know and, 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 and many people know, right? The, the traditional um, definition of metabolic health is like a, a compendium of um, the, the multiple parameters like your lipid profile, your uh, blood pressure levels, uh, your glucose levels, right? And your body max index or at least your uh, uh, waist uh, ratio. So um, circumference, sorry. <laughs> So, uh, but but as as we know more at, at the adaptations um, or, or what happens at the cellular level, right? We are getting to to an inflection point in the in the field of of, of medicine where um, uh, metabolism has gone from being the uh, the poor brother to being the uh, the crown prince, right? By, I mean, you look at the curriculum of medical schools, um, uh, even still today, they, they barely have any. Um, um, uh, uh, courses, right, or notions of metabolism at the cellular level, while at the research level, the uh, advances have been immense. Uh, that we can already um, uh, use to uh, help people, as well as to understand diseases uh, at a level that we have never been. Right. So, so this is why metabolic health implies more um, uh, mitochondrial function, uh, implies also more. Uh, fitness in place, longevity, right? So people uh, nowadays are not happy just to have good cholesterol levels, right? Or, or, or good blood pressure, right? Uh, or good uh, a- A1C or, or glucose levels, right? People want to be fitter, want to be, want to live longer, not necessarily per in, in the amounts of years, because we all want more, but to live better, right? And, uh, and want to be uh, healthier. So all this, I would put it in the new basket, if you will, of metabolic health. A lot of your work seems to focus on how efficiently we can take the, the I guess, potential energy in food, be it carbohydrates or fat, and turn that from a chemical energy into a mechanical energy, contract the muscle and, and move the skeleton. Do you also consider 
sort of fuel partitioning. You know, I'm, I'm interested in some of Professor Roy Taylor's work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him and his work looking at type 2 diabetes and this concept of, of personal fat threshold being sort of integral to metabolic health in that uh, once we kind of spill over or store fat beyond our subcutaneous fat capability, it starts to get in between and and within organs, and that seems to also be a sort of key component of metabolic health. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. That's a big component. Um, abdominal fat is, is highly associated uh, with a cardiometabolic disease. Um, and also, uh, there's more and more research. Um, one of the leading researchers is a, uh, my colleague here at the University of Colorado, uh, Dr. Brian Bergman, uh, with his research in the um, um, intramuscular uh, fat, um, which is highly, um, uh, and, and, and others, right? They have been doing research, extensive research on this, uh, linking uh, that intramuscular fat with uh, 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 insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes as well. So yeah, definitely fat. Uh, the connection between fat and, and, and metabolic diseases is there for sure. And we are doing already in our laboratory, and uh, yeah, which we can talk in more detail later if you want. Sure. How much of your understanding of of how exercise specifically influences metabolic health has come from your work with elite athletes, and and why why are elite athletes sort of this, a good model for studying metabolic health? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So. Um, I always say it's difficult or, 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 or not very, you know, it's difficult to understand imperfection if we don't know perfection in the first place, right? So, um, uh, and, and elite athletes are the, the perfect machines. They are perfection. And uh, they're the Ferraris or the Lamborghinis, right? So from the lessons that we have learned from working with the perfect machines, we can understand or have a... Uh, um, uh, a reference of what perfection is so that we can understand imperfection. So this is why I've been trying to bring for, for, for a couple of decades into the clinical space, right? To push to try to understand, um, I mean, to try to bring the lessons that we have learned working with elite athletes so that we can understand different diseases better, as well as the application of uh, different interventions like uh, exercise, especially, and, and also even nutrition. How much of the sort of cardiometabolic disease burden that we see today do you feel is is explained by sedentary lifestyles and a lack of, of specific cardiovascular training versus other things like nutrition, which you just mentioned? Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to wear my... my, my uh, uh, cell physiology background, right? And, and try to see this from, from a, a decrease in mitochondrial function or a decay in the mitochondrial function. So, um, uh, the mitochondria, you know, is, as we know, the powerhouses of the cells. And this is how we have been uh, learning about that for, for decades, right? However, not until, until recently, relatively, relatively speaking, we've been very interested in mitochondrial function. And now um, what we see is like pretty much no matter which medical field you get into and you talk to leading researchers uh, in, in, in multiple medical fields, everybody's stumbling upon 
mitochondria, right? In mitochondrial function. Now, when it comes to cardiometabolic disease, um, uh, there are two main events that happen um, when it comes to nutrition. One is the metabolization uh, of uh, um, carbohydrates and, the, uh, and, and fats. So um, um, during postprandial conditions after a meal, um, about 80% of all carbohydrates are burned or metabolized in, in skeletal muscle, right? Uh, and, and it's time to really call skeletal muscle an organ. It's probably the largest organ in the body. And uh, it's very important to, to, to see this because uh, within skeletal muscle um, at rest, carbohydrates, which are turned into glucose in the blood, no matter what type of carbohydrate you have, whether it's good or bad carbohydrates, they're all going to become glucose in the blood, like fructose. Uh, most of the fructose that you ingest is converted uh, uh, by the liver into glucose, right? So all that has to be metabolized and under resting conditions, about 80% are done in, in, in skeletal muscle. And within skeletal muscle, this happens in mitochondria. So if you have a, a, a dysfunctional mitochondria or or a mitochondrial that is uh, impaired, you're going to have a metabolic challenge because you're going to have to burn uh, the, that glucose. And if you don't do it correctly, uh, eventually uh, you're going to have a problem because that glucose is going to be building up in the blood, causing um, hyperglycemia, high blood glucose levels. And uh, the pancreas reacts to that because it's dangerous to have high glucose levels. And the pancreas reacts by releasing uh, insulin. And insulin triggers the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the transportation of glucose inside the cell. But it's not just about the transport of glucose inside the cell, which is what we've been hearing for decades, right? Uh, the, the world of type 2 diabetes has been evolved um, more at peripheral level, if you will, at the level of hyperglycemia, insulinemia or hyperinsulinemia, um, um, insulin resistance, even GLUT4, which are the, the, the transporters of glucose, uh, they are stimulated by, by insulin, right? But we need to start talking about pyruvate and about the fate of, 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 of glucose inside the cell, because this is absolutely key. Because one thing is to transport glucose inside the cell, and the other thing is to metabolize glucose to ATP and energy in mitochondria of in, inside the cell, right? So this is the key, the, key, the key aspect. So there's two sort of critical things here we're talking about with regards to glucose and metabolic health. One is the ability to get glucose from circulation into the muscle cell. And you sort of alluded to the fact that that's been the story for a long time. And earlier you spoke about intramuscular fat. And so to my understanding, part of that story has been that as fat starts to accumulate in muscle tissue, it can make it harder to get glucose into the cell. Yeah. But what you're adding and, and saying is that the story of metabolic health and glucose metabolism and the difference between someone with poor metabolic health and an elite athlete goes beyond that. And we need to begin thinking about once that glucose is within the cell, how it is being metabolized, which I believe from, from, from your work and, and it's something that we're going to discuss comes down to the function and health of the mitochondria. 
Exactly. And, 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 and then the problem is like if you don't metabolize that glucose in mitochondria, inside the cell within mitochondria, then uh, you have a metabolic challenge, right? And eventually, yeah, you're going to increase uh, or you're going to elicit a condition of uh, hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, eventually insulin resistance. But the same thing, and the same thing happens also, or the, the same metabolic uh, problem happens with fats because uh, fats can only be oxidized in mitochondria as well, right? So when uh, fats cannot be oxidized in mitochondria, they, they, they build up, right? You cannot utilize them as uh, energy. So you store them, you store them in adipose tissue, but you also store them adjacent to mitochondria in, um, um, in, in the muscle, right? And that eventually increases the reservoir or, or the deposits of, of, of fat inside muscle, right? Which is, again, as I said at the beginning, right? It's, it's highly related to insulin resistance, right? And, and that could be a connection between cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Um, we know that about 80% of, not 80%, I don't want to say a percentage yet because we still have to learn more, but a big, a big number of people with type 2 diabetes, they also have a cardiovascular disease and vice versa. And this is what's been now termed more like a cardiometabolic disease, right? Because it's the combination of both diseases, right? So, so this is what uh, probably a big nexus for this is, uh, uh, it happens in, in mitochondria. Let's define the term metabolize. I know that term gets used a lot and it's certainly um, sort of widely used within the, the literature talking about mitochondrial health and energy metabolism, but we may, we may take it a little bit for granted and, and perhaps someone's you know, wondering, what does that actually mean to metabolize something? Yeah, so it is, it is to uh, convert into energy. Right, so um, the food that we have, we 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 uh, we have, right? We need to metabolize them to energy. So uh, and and we live in uh, and for and that happens in mitochondria. So if you cannot metabolize it correctly to energy, uh, you are going to pose a metabolic challenge to that cell, and because it's not going to be able to convert it to energy efficiently, so it it, it either it's going to be building up. Right, uh, and, and and as in the case of fat, it's not good that it builds up around muscle. It's in the case if it is in the case of uh, glucose, it's it's an immediate challenge, metabolic challenge, because you cannot have high glucose levels because it can be dangerous, right? Um, um, and and another thing that happens too is that when glucose cannot be metabolized correctly inside mitochondria. Um, uh, pyruvate, turn, pyru, pyruvate turns into lactate. And lactate is a key metabolite uh, for, um, uh, it's a signaling molecule. It's one of the most important signaling molecules. And uh, this is the, the work, the 52 years of work that my colleague and mentor George Brooks uh, from Berkeley has been doing. Uh, pretty much everything we know about lactate is because of him. And now the implications of, of lactate in health. So we know that lactate is a great um, 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 uh, signaling molecule that is probably very important for cellular homeostasis. But um, uh, when it builds up and is 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 too much lactate inside the cell, it uh, become uh, um, detrimental to the function of the cell. And and we have seen that uh, in different research that we and others have done. Um, but that's that's the problem of not being able to metabolize 
nutrients efficiently. Um, and this is happening already in uh, as a big part of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's has been historically only been focusing on uh, um, um, the uh, amyloid plaque, uh, and uh, um, which is there, of course, and is highly related to the progression of the disease. But the whole thing is that every single drug against the amyloid plaque has failed. Um, now that has led to many researchers to, to try to look into different angles to understand Alzheimer's. And uh, one of them has been um, uh, uh, insulin resistance and mitochondrial dysfunction in, in Alzheimer's, which is an, it's a hallmark. Uh, before it was, it was daring to, to even mention that, right? The connection between Alzheimer's and diabetes uh, or colic type 3 diabetes. But it's, a, it's, a, it's now highly, widely recognized as a hallmark of diabetes, insulin resistance, and uh, um, mitochondrial dysfunction. So th there's a big problem for Alzheimer's patients to metabolize glucose as well. I want to put a pin in lactate and come back to it once we've kind of walked through the different energy systems that the body is using and, and how this may change its sort of different exercise intensities. I know there's a whole sort of lactate, lactic acid story, and I've heard you before sort of clarify a few things. So I think it's important that we do come back to that. Um, another term I want to define here, Inigo, at the outset that is thrown out a lot is metabolic flexibility. What does metabolic flexibility actually mean? Yeah, so uh, the, the, yeah, the term metabolic flexibility, um, it's, it's not a new term. Uh, we, we are starting to, to use it more, right? But uh, it's a term that it was coined uh, over uh, 25 years ago by uh, Kelly and uh, Mandarino, as well as Good, Good Pastor. Um, and, 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 and even before that, in the late 1700s, um, um, it was thanks to the work of uh, Lavoisier who uh, started to look into uh, aerobic um, metabolism. And uh, um, so he started everything related to uh, res uh, cellular respiration. But the, 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 the term um, metabolic flexibility um, in a very uh, simple way is, is the ability of humans to, to uh, burn fat and carbohydrates and to, to, to switch back and forth. So when there is a carbohydrate availability, um, like elite athletes, for example, or, or fit individuals, they can use them very rapidly to, uh, for energy purposes, and they metabolize it very rapidly. Uh, when there is not much um, um, carbohydrate availability, then you switch very well and very efficiently to utilize uh, fatty acids for energy purposes. Or when you're fed uh, fatty acids, you can metabolize them very well, right? And all that happens in mitochondria or most of that happens in mitochondria. At, at rest, everything happens in mitochondria. During exercise, it can happen in the, in the cytosol. Uh, so uh, it's inside the cell, but not in mitochondria, right? Uh, because you can use it through the uh, uh, aerobic glycolysis. But uh, during uh, rest, under resting conditions, yeah, everything happens in mitochondria. So that's, again, it, it, it's at the epicenter of metabolic flexibility. So people who are yeah, metabolically inflexible uh, there are people who cannot metabolize fatty acids or, or glucose properly, right? And therefore, um, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, uh, it, it, it's going to pose a metabolic challenge uh, because it can increase glucose levels on one hand as also increase the fat deposits in the muscles as well as then in the adipose tissue.
Inigo, is it is it those things that are driving the increased risk of conditions like fatty liver disease and type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease or is it the building up of lactate and and other changes that are occurring or or, or is it sort of a, a coalescence so to speak of all of these factors yeah i think i think there's a lot of you know uh, um, multifactorial right uh, in in these processes of diseases but uh, many of these elements are are are, are acting or working together. Um, um, I, I really think, and it's my opinion, that everything starts by a mitochondrial decay or a mitochondrial dysfunction. And uh, where, as we mentioned, um, it's, you cannot metabolize nutrients efficiently, which can lead to uh, a disease uh, because, yeah, again, hyperglycemia and increased fatty acid storage. But the the, the 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 core question for that is like where that what causes that mitochondrial dysfunction right so um what 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 happens in mitochondrial dysfunction the main element that we know um, uh, besides uh infections or besides uh mutations that can happen right um uh, at the at the level of uh, acquired uh decay of mitochondrial dysfunction is lack of physical activity is the main mechanism uh, in the same manner that we know that the only thing that, that we know that exists to improve mitochondrial function is exercise. Um, um, the same thing happens when there's lack of physical activity. Yeah, mitochondrial function is going to decay. So when you have, as we have, an immense majority or immense amount of population who are not physically active, you have a, a, um, a lot of mitochondrial dysfunction or decay happening in this population combined with an excessive amount of food that we have. So that's a, that's a, a an explosion, an explosive mixture, right? That eventually it is going to lead to, to disease, right? So if you have a, a poor mitochondrial function and you, you add more glucose or carbohydrates that uh, you're, you're adding, yeah, you're, you're just adding gasoline to the fire. And likewise, uh, and this, these you're going to see rapidly because it's an immediate, metabolic challenge, um, you need to deal with that right away, right? Because you're going to have high glucose level, blood glucose levels. But uh, with the fat, it's not an immediate challenge. It's just uh, it's stored, but uh, it keeps being stored, stored, and down the road, it's going to lead to disease. But uh, I think everything happens by, by a mitochondrial decay um, uh, due to a lack of physical activity. Right. So for the average person in, in Western developed countries, the current lifestyle is kind of stoking this metabolic fire in, in two directions. One is that, that lack of stimulus to keep the mitochondria healthy. And as you say, leading to mitochondrial decay. And um, I know that your work has looked very specifically at how can we exercise with intent? How can we provide the best stimulus, which we're going to get to, get to which is the practical side of this conversation. But then the, the fire is also being stoked through the consumption of a diet that is leading to excessive calorie consumption and, and frankly, I guess, energy toxicity to an extent, too many calories um, beyond the person's requirements. You've, you've, mentioned, you've mentioned the word aerobic a, a few times and we've been speaking about mitochondria. And when I hear the word aerobic, I think about oxygen. I think about energy being produced 
in the presence of oxygen and this occurring in the mitochondria. Can you explain how this works? I think that most people appreciate the importance of oxygen in sustaining life, but but maybe do not fully appreciate how oxygen is involved in the production of energy. Yeah, so I mean, oxygen is it's it's necessary, right? At the, in in in, in during the uh, what, what what we call oxidative phosphorylation, right? Which is the production of ATP. Oxygen needs to be present, right? Um, um, but that's that's at the very end spectrum of the of that of the chain, right? Of uh, events of metabolizing the nutrient, right? Uh, so um, that's what you know, like uh, most of the energy. Um, uh, metabolized nutrients metabolized are under aerobic conditions. However, we we've been having you know that this idea that when you exercise um, at high intensity, it's anaerobic, right? Uh, how many times we hear that? Oh, I was doing anaerobic intervals, or I was I was I was I was anaerobic really hard today, training for twenty minutes, right? When that that's not anaerobic, right? And this is what I think it's time to. To, to kind of change a little bit the perception of this more from bioenergetic standpoint than from oxygen standpoint, because um, everything uh, pretty much up until VO2 max, until you reach your, your maximum oxygen consumption, which is almost your maximum effort, is aerobic, right? Beyond that point, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's um, 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 ATP cannot be synthesized Right, uh, with the help of uh, of oxygen, um, and it needs to be uh, the ATP that is stored in the muscles. Uh, it needs to be um, utilized for energy purposes, um, and that does not require an, an aerobic metabolism. So that's why it's called anaerobic, right? Exercise, but everything up until then is aerobic. What it changes is the types of fuels that you use. So within the big uh, range of aerobic metabolism you can use a lot of fatty acids and then not much carbohydrates or you can use a lot of carbohydrates and not much or not many uh, fatty acids right so that that's the key point you know what is the fuel that you're using right within the whole um, um, aerobic realm because that's going to determine um, what is going to be the metabolic outcome uh, as well as uh, for bioenergetic stimulus and cellular level, what are you going to stimulate? What metabolic pathway? What type of a bioenergetics are you going to stimulate with one exercise intensity or another, right? Uh, you still stimulate aerobic metabolism, but you might elicit different changes at the cellular level with different exercise intensities. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, 
and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so let's let's step through this. Um, as intensity is increasing, so the listener can appreciate what changes are happening with regards to the substrates that are being used to produce energy, where that energy is being produced. And Inigo, it may, it may make sense here to start introducing zones. I think people have heard you know, zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, zone five. So if you think it's a good idea, perhaps as we're talking about the changes that are occurring with regards to how energy is being produced and where it's being produced, we can kind of pair that with the zone slash intensity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, the way I see zones is from, uh, you know, like a cellular uh, metabolism glasses, right? Um, uh, what, so I see, for example, this is also based on the muscle fiber recruitment pattern, which is going to also um, uh, elicit different uh, fuel utilizations and fuel partitioning, right? So when we start exercising very easily, like a very easy walk, for example, or, or a very easy bike ride for those ones who are fit on the bike, um, the body prefers to use fat for energy purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't use glucose, right? Because we, we also use uh, glucose. Uh, the, the, there is a misconception. Uh, misconception that at low intensities we do not use glucose we do use glucose and this is i've been for almost two decades uh, measuring in the laboratory fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates at, at, at the wide range of exercise intensities all the exercise intensities and seeing in grams per minute 
how much uh, uh, how many carbohydrates and and, and fatty acids uh, you uh, burn or oxidized at different intensities, right? Which has helped me tremendously to understand the bioenergetics and metabolic map, as I call, of, of what are the series of events of different intensities. So again, at different at at, at a slow intensity, we, we we deploy a lot of the fat, um, um, and then we use a little bit of glucose, right? It's very low intensity, and we we deploy, we recruit the slow twitch muscle fibers. That's what I called uh, zone one, right? Uh, and again, when it comes to zones, the multiple zones, people have different uh, um, terminologies and, and interpretations. So I'm, I'm just giving you mine, right? Um, so so then as exercise intensity increases, then the, the muscle contraction gets faster, right, and stronger. So uh, in, it, it needs a higher metabolic demand to produce ATP. So that's what uh, you start uh, burning even more fat, right? But you also start burning more glucose also, but uh, not as much uh, fluctuation in glucose uh, utilization as it is in fat, right? So And this, so- this glucose at this stage is being being used to produce energy within the mitochondria. All of this is still occurring in the mitochondria. Normally, yes, because it's uh, the glycolytic flux, as we call, uh, it allows the velocity of the glucose to be used uh, through pyruvate in mitochondria. Yes, uh, although some is uh, reduced or transformed to lactate in, in the cytosol of the cell, and therefore uh, there's a little bit of lactate production, which is also coincides with this intensity. Little bit, which is about baseline levels, or a little bit about baseline levels, right? But but this is where um, uh, at this intensity that I call zone two, this is where you um, uh, reach a point where you oxidize the highest amount of fat, right? Um, and and this is a key point because uh, fat is oxidized exclusively in mitochondria, right? So when you reach a point where you um, achieve the maximum fat oxidation is like, yeah, you're putting those mitochondria to work at that uh, bioenergetic system, which is the the fatty acid oxidation and uh, oxidative phosphorylation to the max. So this is what I I use this zone uh, to prescribe exercise as this is what I see that this is where you oxidize the most amount of fat. So we can see uh, in many people, when we do this test in the laboratory, we can see that this um, we can we can translate this into heart rate, for example, or into pace or into power. Um, so that 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 is the exercise intensity that releases the highest fat oxidation. Um, then we we start we continue increasing the uh, exercise intensity, and the metabolic demand becomes even larger right so you need to produce ATP faster and this is where there, there's an inflection point where fat cannot um, uh, continue producing ATP at the same rate as before so this is where glucose uh, um, is um, called in uh, at a higher rate because uh, ATP from glucose uh, is produced significantly faster than from fat, right? So that's when glucose starts to be recruited. And then you see in, 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 in the laboratory at this intensity, you see that um, um, fat starts to drop significantly, 
there's a significant drop in fat oxidation, and there's a significant increase in um, um, glucose um, oxidation or utilization. And, and at the same time, you see also a, uh, an inflection point also for lactate because lactate and glucose go together. As I was saying earlier, it's about glucose flux. The higher the glucose flux into the cell, the higher the lactate accumulation, right? So, so this is what's starting to happen in this zone three that I call, which is a transition zone before we enter a whole different um, um, uh, bioenergetic uh, terrain, which is glycolysis, right? Um, uh, or, 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 yeah, what the glycolytic system. So this is when uh, exercise intensity is now so hard that fat can no longer provide ATP uh, or, or uh, you know, like, or be a substrate for ATP production, right? And this is when uh, you need to uh, start deploying um, um, uh, fat, I mean, carbohydrates and glucose. And this is what we see that at this intensity, fat oxidation completely disappears. Uh, it's gone. At the same time, uh, you see an, a, a big increase in glucose oxidation and a sharp increase in uh, lactate uh, because of the glucose flux. And this is also what lactate also has the uh, um, uh, endocrine, paracrine, and autocrine um, uh, functions. So the, the endocrine function of lactate is that when accumulates in the cell and cannot be metabolized in mitochondria, it goes to the blood. And it goes to the blood, it inhibits lipolysis, uh, which is the breakdown of fatty acids from adipose tissue. So when it inhibits lipolysis, you're not going to be able in the first place to, to bring the, the, the fatty acids to, to the muscles to be burned, right? And then secondly, and we, we have published this recently two years ago, that we saw and we demonstrated that lactate as an autocrine um, function, it also inhibits the fatty acid transporter. So in, in, in the muscles, fatty acids, they, they have a door, which are the CPT1 and CPT2 in, my, in mitochondria, outside and inside mitochondria, they transport fatty acids, right? So lactate inhibits both doors. So when you have a high glycolytic uh, flux and you use a lot of glucose, the fat disappears for several reasons. First, because of necessity to produce ATP, right, at a faster rate. And second, because the uh, uh, actions of lactate on both adipose tissue and also on, on the transporters for fat. So it's a way to to uh, a fit forward mechanism, right, to, to kind of get fat out of the way and say, hey, fat, you're done. Your job is done. Now we go into glucose. And this is what I call zone four, right? Uh, or people call also lactate threshold, although there are many interpretations of lactate threshold also, of or FTP, functional threshold power, et cetera, right? And then, but all this is aerobic. All this is 100% aerobic uh, metabolism, right? Although this is what I was mentioning earlier, the misconception is like we're already in the anaerobic state and that's why people call it anaerobic threshold, right? We're still aerobic, right? Then we move on into the, the, the next uh, phase, which is it's, it's, it's an intensity that this is where you reach your view two max. This is an intensity where uh, uh, you max your aerobic capacity. Right, your lactate—it's off the chart. Your your glucose utilization and the glucose flux in in the cell is off the chart. There's no fat oxidation either, but you're you're at at the, at the intensity where you um, uh, have the highest aerobic capacity, uh, and and this is 
the view two max, and I call that the zone five, right? And then lastly, we call, I call the zone six, which is pure anaerobic. Uh, this is when we're talking about sprinting or about efforts that last two or three minutes, right? Where uh, that um, oxygen that you were referring to earlier is not enough, uh, or even glucose is not enough to to maintain. I mean, to synthesize ATP and 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 then the muscles they need the ATP that's stored in the muscles already without the need of, of, of oxygen. Okay. I have a lot of questions. That was beautifully explained. Let me, let me try and summarize some of that and you can let me know if I've got anything wrong. Um, but at, at lower intensities, the body is, is using the oxidative phosphorylation system, this aerobic energy production system whereby energy is being produced within the mitochondria. And at, at very low intensities, that's primarily but not exclusively being being done by using fat as the substrate. There is some glucose, and that's uh, fat is predominating as the substrate of choice at sort of zone one and two. And then as you start to go up above zone two, you start to see an increase in the amount of aerobic glycolysis. So using glucose to produce uh, ATP within the mitochondria and the oxidation of fat starts to go down as you go up from zone three to zone four. But all of this is still aerobic. And then once you go into zone five, you start to get this anaerobic glycolysis. So we're now able to produce ATP from glucose without the presence of oxygen. Um, And then above that is that where the phosphocreatine system would kick in the the sort of third energy system yeah the atp phosphocreatine yes exactly is is what's stored in the muscle already and it doesn't require oxygen for that yeah and that's a pure aerobic uh, system that we have right everything else is aerobic there there are some like uh sparks of an, an, an aerobic metabolism right but but yeah this is like a the, the predominant is always aerobic. So I have a few questions. The first is, for a given amount of oxygen, is it is it accurate that we can produce more ATP from glucose than from fat? Well, I mean, more rapidly. The, 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 the important aspect, and this is why there's a transition, right? It depends on the fi- muscle fiber recruitment pattern. The way I would approach it is like how fast you can produce ATP. That's going to dictate uh, the fuel that you use, right? So ATP, so from from I mean uh, derived from fat, is significantly much higher um, uh, amount uh, from, uh, of ATP derived from fat than it is from glucose. However, it's significantly slower. So that's why when you're in the lower intensities, recruiting the slow twitch muscle fibers, uh, you um, yeah you don't you don't need to oxidize or use so much glucose as at high intensities uh, where then fat cannot be oxidized because it's not fast enough and you need to switch to a different fuel, which is the glucose, right? Which which gives you significantly less amount of ATP total, right? Per mole oxidized, but it gives you a much higher uh, amount of uh, ATP, which is why the muscles need that fast contraction. And that's why you have the fast twitch muscle fibers. So why does the body prefer to use fat at lower intensities? Is that is that a survival adaptation, just that there's more 
uh, potential energy in the form of fat available in the body and and it makes sense to conserve energy from carbohydrates for when you need to shift into a, a sort of higher intensity to escape predation for example yeah absolutely and 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 this is this is this is the the one thing you know the the way we store food right so carbohydrates are, are like gold right that the the body can only store about uh, 500 grams you know of carbohydrates whereas uh, uh so we're talking about that's uh, uh 2000 calories you know uh whereas that the the the, the, the skinniest individual um can can store uh, more than 10,000 calories for, from fat right cuz fat is everywhere right uh so uh, I, uh, it's kind of in a way fat is in a, it's kind of an, an unlimited source of fuel right whereas uh, uh carbohydrates or glycogen right that's how we store like carbohydrates as you know so glycogen is very very small uh, storage compared to fat so that's why it's gold and this is why um yeah which is that as, as as our evolution you know we're um aerobic creatures we're slow in general creatures right we walk a lot or we run at a low pace right um and that we can even beat horses in long endurance you know because we are more efficient metabolically speaking the horse has a lot of um um, um uh, fast twitch muscle fibers we have a lot of slow twitch muscle fibers and those mechanisms as they allow us like uh um i, I cannot cite the research now but uh uh but there's been a a few studies and 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 how and 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 competitions are very long competitions like a like a 100 miles or so where of a horse versus a human and a human can get to beat the horse right uh, obviously bigger for for both but anyways that just don't want to get out of uh context but yeah we we are born uh, our evolution we're born to uh to uh to burn fat uh as glucose but to, to be able to store a lot of fat, but our evolution has told us that a key energy, not just for high intensity exercise when when we, we have to run away from a from a bear or from a lion, right? Or or when we have to get engage into very high um, stressful situations, but also for the brain, right? We need your glucose, and uh, so that's why it's it's uh, uh, the storage is very small. And that's gold for the body. So the body is going to try to defend as much as possible the glucose or the glycogen storages uh, by then uh, try to be more efficient at burning fat. Yeah, there's a, a, a really nice review paper. I'm, I'm sure you've come across this. It was in Nature Metabolism by Mark Hargraves. And I'll put figure two up on the screen for those that are watching on YouTube, but it speaks to the potential energy that's available in the form of fat in adipose tissue and glycogen in the liver and muscle and it sort of makes it very clear that there is this order of magnitude more potential energy in the form of fat stored in in adipose tissue as, as you just kind of walked us through the next question i have is you you stress the importance of the point of maximum fat oxidation quite a lot and my understanding of where you're coming from there is that during um, specific exercise namely zone two 
at this point of maximum fat oxidation, we're providing a very specific direct stimulus to the mitochondria, which then causes it to upgrade or adapt or grow stronger, which we can we can get into in a little bit as to exactly what happens. But my question is why that is the best intensity to stimulate the mitochondria because you just made it clear as well that when we go into zone three and zone four, this is still aerobic. So even though the the a contribution of fat to the production of ATP may be declining, glucose is ramping up and that glucose is being used to produce ATP within the mitochondria. So why is it that we're... we're chasing a stimulus to directly target the production of ATP from fat within the mitochondria as opposed to just the total amount of ATP that's produced within the mitochondria regardless of whether it's coming from fat or glucose. I'm not sure if I articulated that well. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated and we're, we're still trying to really um, uh, answer it, I guess, you know, in a more articulated way, right? Uh, and and uh, in a more scientific way, if you will, right? So, what what I have seen from thirty years of uh, of work with uh, with athletes, with patients, and research is that that's the intensity when I started using it, and and by no means I'm I'm saying I I, I invented <laughs> zone two because that that you know who knows who who started. I just say that my zone two, the way I see it. I started using it 30 years ago, and this is what I what I first I saw looking at lactate clearance capacity. That that intensity it was the one that improved the most lactate clearance capacity uh, and and performance. So um, 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 and lactate is a it's it's a it's a mitochondrial substrate because lactate can only be oxidized in mitochondria. Or, or be converted back to pyruvate to be oxidized in mitochondria. So lactate is a great uh, pro- lactate is a great proxy or surrogate for mitochondrial function. Then about uh, 18 years ago, I started to add uh, fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates in the laboratory and to measure as a to measure as I mentioned earlier fat oxidation. And uh, I could see also that that intensity was the one that improved fat oxidation the most. Right, so that's what I developed this this indirect methodology to look at uh, or or to assess mitochondrial function in a non-invasive way without doing muscle biopsies. So by looking at lactate and looking at fat oxidation, uh, both are um, uh, mitochondrial surrogates or mitochondrial substrates. Right, so we can indirectly measure that. Uh, so, and, and my colleague, uh, George Brooks and I, we published, uh, in 2017, a, a study looking at the correlations between fat oxidation and lactate, blood lactate levels, uh, denoting lactate clearance capacity and the correlations, whether you were like an elite athlete, uh, an active, a moderately active individual or, or a person with a metabolic disease, met, uh, um, a metabolic syndrome, uh, the, the correlation was, was incredibly high. So that's what we know that they both can be very good surrogates for mitochondrial function. Now, that being said, again, this is why at first it was a trial and error, right? I was saying, okay, which intensity of the ones I define in my dictionary, which intensities improve 
mitochondrial function the most. Right? Is it zone one, zone two, three, four, five, right? So with thousands of tests that I've done, right, uh, this is what I saw constant, constantly, that this was the intensity that improved uh, mitochondrial function the most. And also I saw that this was the intensity that improved performance the most. So this is what I saw this with, with, with my athletes. Uh, it was very successful to see this uh, with, with results. And now this is what I, from the beginning, I was saying from lessons learned from athletes, uh, can we use this um, um, to, to, to prescribe exercise to populations with chronic diseases to stimulate mitochondrial function? So again, this is a way, um, and, and I'm sorry if I didn't do the, the, the best way, but this is my way to explain why zone two is an important uh, to stimulate mitochondrial function. Not saying that the other ones are not going to do that, Right, but what I've seen that this is the most efficient, and I've seen over thirty years, for for almost thirty years. Okay, so you're you're looking at lactate not so much as a problematic compound, which it has been kind of labeled over the years, but more so as a window into the mitochondria to tell you how well the mitochondria in that person is functioning. So when you looked at people with metabolic syndrome what you saw compared to sort of average people and elite athletes was that for a given sort of intensity, they were producing much more lactate. And so that was telling you that their mitochondria was not as healthy and not functioning as well as the others who at that same intensity were producing much less lactate. Yes, exactly. It's a it's a great surrogate to see what's the mitochondrial function, and, and it's going to become more and more uh, uh, part of the regular blood analysis that people do, uh, like when people look at uh, blood glucose levels. Like, what what are your resting blood glucose levels, right? So soon uh, we're going to see what are your resting lactate levels, uh, because what we see in populations with uh, metabolic syndrome um, uh, or obesity uh, or type two diabetes we see that uh, at rest, they have about two to three times the level that healthy people have. So if we have at rest, if you look at athletes, their resting levels of lactate are 0.6, 0.8. Uh, moderately active individuals, healthy individuals, this is kind of our standard, how would we like to be? We are around one millimole. But we see that people with uh, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, uh, cardiometabolic disease, they have at rest, uh, many of them, uh, two to three millimoles. So that, that's about two to three times um, uh, the, the levels that um, uh, health individuals have. So imagine um, that your blood glucose levels are two times or three times um, as high as uh, what the normal should be in health individuals, right? So I think that this is it's getting to be, it's going to be more and more a parameter um, uh, for health. Uh, resting lactate levels, um, yeah, but that, but that lactate, uh, yeah, it's um, it's uh, it, it's a great fuel. So that's the other thing too. Lactate we've seen as a toxic product is is probably the best fuel in the body because uh, it's 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 metabolized faster than glucose, significantly faster than glucose. So if you give uh, most cells in the body the possibility of, of use glucose or, 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 or lactate, they're going to prefer to use lactate. The brain is a great lactate user. The heart is a great lactate user. The kidneys, 
the muscles, obviously, but it happens in mitochondria. So you need to have a good mitochondrial function. And, and the problem is not when it comes to exercise, it's not the lactate, but it is the hydro hydrogen ions associated to lactate, which elicit an acidic microenvironment in the muscle. This is the other thing that we see in cancer, the famous now uh, tumor microenvironment, which is the, the microenvironment around cancer cells, which is very acidic. And that's a niche for cancer growth, for carcinogenesis, for metastasis, right? That is a big deal area, of, a big area of research now. And, uh, and, and that tumor microenvironment and that, that, that acidic microenvironment is caused by lactate from, from the tumor cells, which is dysregulated. In skeletal muscle is dysregulated during exercise and, uh, um, or accumulates in people who don't clear it correctly into energy. And, and those hydrogen ions accumulate and they might, it's, it's part of the fatigue, not everything by no means. There are multiple aspects of fatigue, central fatigue, peripheral fatigue, local fatigue that we still are trying to understand and explain. But this is a part of that where uh, excess of hydrogen ions from lactate can impair both the speed and the force of muscle contraction. Okay, so lactate itself is not necessarily a problem if we can clear it and we can shuttle it back in and use it as an energy substrate. But if our mitochondria are dysfunctional, it can build up. And along with that lactate coming for the ride are these hydrogen ions, which change the pH within the cell that then can affect perhaps contribute to fatigue and, and power. Yes, yes. And, 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 and when it comes to disease, uh, it's lactate, um, it's, it's highly related to disease, you know, when it's not, when it accumulates chronically. Because during exercise, lactate, even in, in, a, in, a, people, in, in, in a person who is not fit, lactate is going to accumulate fast. But when the exercise ceases, uh, lactate levels don't accumulate, return back to baseline. But in diseases like cancer, or when there's a significant mitochondrial dysfunction in people with type 2 diabetes, that lactate accumulates chronically, right? And especially in cancer, the more aggressive the cancer is, the more lactate is produced. And uh, through our research, we're showing that lactate acts, acts as an oncometabolite. That is, it's, uh, it regulates the expression of, uh, uh, of uh, sorry, it regulates the genetic expression of, uh, of, uh, of the, uh, the, the expression of the main, of the most important genes involved in, uh, in cancer. We we're doing this with uh, breast cancer. We have published one paper. We have another one in, uh, in under review now. And, and then we, we have two more papers coming out with, with two types of lung cancers. Um, and then we also see that, um, lactate also, um, uh, regulates the, the uh, transcription of the uh, main proteins that are dysregulated in cancer. And, and, and now we're trying to intervene. And, and the study that we have now under, re under review, uh, we are, um, with genetic engineering, we're knocking out, knocking down, sorry, the, the, the enzyme that produces lactate, which is LDHA. And then uh, in breast cancer cells, we see that when we knock out that uh, enzyme, uh, no lactate is produced and uh, no gen no, uh, there's no protein expression. 
of those dysregulated proteins uh, coming from dysregulated genes in cancer, right? So it's a key regulator of, of, of cancer uh, that already Otto Warburg a century ago uh, proposed uh, because now we talk a lot, we hear a lot about sugar, the connection of sugar and cancer, right? Um, and that comes from the uh, renaissance of, of the Warburg effect. So Otto Warburg discovered in 1923 that uh, cancer cells, they utilized a lot of glucose. And that was the first uh, uh, metabolic transformation of a normal cell into a cancer cell, characterized by that. But what really struck Warburg was the excessive amount of lactate produced by, by cancer cells. Now, uh, that was back in the days, unfortunately, he didn't have the technology that we have nowadays to understand that better. And, and there were not, the genes were not discovered, right? And uh, so, but, um, but yeah, um, he already, he was so smart and so ahead of us that a century ago, he already posited that cancer could be a metabolic disease, which is not quite entirely correct, but there's no doubt that the metabolic uh, um, um, factor in cancer is crucial. But the way how he described an injury of, of, of cellular respiration or, or mitochondrial function was lactate because he, he already said, okay, wait a minute. If lactate cannot be oxidized or burned in mitochondria of cancer cells, um, is because mitochondria are not working properly. So maybe there's an injury of cellular respiration. So th this is the main thing that he proposed a uh, hundred years ago. Yeah, that's fascinating. And some some cutting edge sort of insights, I guess, into where the the world of cancer research and and treatment might be headed from a metabolic health point of view. My head is sort of thinking at the, at the moment about two two different ways of keeping lactate down, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering if you've been able to elucidate this from your research, looking at elite athletes or looking at zone two training interventions. Is it that elite athletes have a greater capacity to clear lactate or are they just producing less lactate because they're better at oxidizing fats? Mm -hmm. That's a great question also. So, And it's been demonstrated uh, by different researchers and among them, uh, George Brooks, that um, um, the feeder an athlete is or a person is uh, in fact, they produce more lactate, uh, mainly because in the same manner that their mitochondrial function is, is more robust and more efficient, their glycolytic system, which I also call in a colloquial terms, the turbo, right? The turbo, it also works better, right? Uh, and in fact, we looked at lactate as a sign of high glycolytic function, uh, which is key for performance, right? So those athletes with very high lactate levels, at very high intensity levels, they're really good uh, at the turbo, right? So they produce a lot of lactate because they use a lot of glucose for energy system. Uh, like uh, some athletes can oxidize six, seven grams per, per minute at those intensities where very good athletes uh, or the top ones can oxidize seven or eight, right? But the, 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 the side effect of that is they're going to be producing a lot of lactate, right? But the virtue they have, because they have a very robust mitochondrial function, is that they clear that lactate from the uh, fast twitch muscle fibers, which is where lactate is produced, 
they clear it in the adjacent slow twitch muscle fibers and in mitochondria of slow twitch muscle fibers. And for that, you need transporters also. So you need two doors, <clears throat> two transporters, MCT4s and MCT1s. So MCT4s are the doors that take lactate out of the fast twitch muscle fibers. And you need to stimulate that intensity training, uh, not just to improve the turbo, the glycolytic capacity, but to improve the uh, capacity of that door to shuttle lactate out, right? And then the slow twitch muscle fibers, when you stimulate those, you, as I we are mentioning, not only improve or, or stimulate mitochondrial function, because that's where they're the most present, because uh, fast twitch muscle fibers cannot burn fat much, so the mitochondrial uh, uh, content is much less. But also the MCT1s are present in those slow twitch muscle fibers, so you stimulate those as well. So that that's how kind of, in a nutshell, like uh, the lactate shuttle that was discovered by George Brooks in the 80s already works. Let me throw that back to you and, and see if I've heard all of that correctly. So lactate clearance can be improved or is a product of our ability to get lactate out of these fast twitch muscle fibers which are going to be activated and utilized at higher intensities i'm thinking sprinting or resistance training for example and and so that stimulus is going to help increase the number of the mct4 transporter you mentioned that helps get lactate out of those muscle fibers or muscle cells we could call them and then the lower intensity work so zone two which is mostly stimulating the slow twitch slow to fatigue muscle fibers muscle cells is acting in a way to increase the mct1 transporter in those cells so you get this sort of nice push pull i guess lactate clearance system where if you're doing the right uh training sort of modalities or intense training at the right intensities have the right stimulus in place exactly. you can you can get the lactate out of the fast twitch muscle fibers get it back into the slow twitch muscle fibers which keeps lactate levels down and also acts as an energy substrate exactly absolutely and, and th this is why i yeah the way i see training or exercise prescription is that right it's like a, from a bioenergetic standpoint and as i always say which energy system you want to stimulate today right so that that's where it's partitioning of of of, of cellular bioenergetics through through exercise and we're talking about two completely different systems the glycolytic system and the oxidative phosphorylation system the lactate channeling system out of the cells and the lactate receiving um, uh, cells, right? Uh, the, the type one muscle fibers and everything is different intensities of exercise are going to elicit different adaptations and different responses. So therefore different adaptations, but we all are talking that all this happens within an aerobic world, right? So still everything that we're talking about here is aerobic, right? So, uh, you can produce plenty of lactate under aerobic conditions. So again, it's just that, 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 that's how it's important when you prescribe exercise, whether it's for an athlete or for a fitness enthusiast or for, for longevity purposes or for patients uh, to really identify training zones because whatever you exercise, 
the intensity that you exercise is going to stimulate one pathway significantly more than the other, right? So yeah, you want to really target and want to know what you want to do. Do you want to improve your glycolytic capacity, your turbo? Because you're very good at, uh, let's say you're, you're very diesel. You're very good at uh, uh, very efficient at metabolizing fats and lactate in mitochondria, but you're not good at, at high intensity, you know? Uh, so you need to stimulate that by identifying your weakness. Uh, but for health purposes, that, that's more maybe for performance. But although we lose like glycolytic capacity of, of, as we age and we, we want to kind of maintain some of that or, or a big part of that, but uh, for health purposes, the main problem that happens as we age for longevity purposes is a mitochondrial decay. As we don't exercise as much as when we were kids, it's a mitochondrial decay. And uh, again, what, what I've seen in my experience for almost 30 years is that that zone two is the one that improves mitochondrial function the most. And that's because it's targeting mostly the sl- slow twitch muscle fibers where most mitochondria are found. Yeah, that's how I see it. And, 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 and again, like the way I, I see is through fat, and carb- fat oxidation in laboratory as lactate cleans capacity. That's the, the area well, for me, uh, or at least from my experience, is without a doubt, and, and many others, you know, they, they've been telling me this. Uh, this is where we see that this is where you improve the most, right? Uh, we might be wrong, and maybe in 20 years, 30 years, we might be talking about their different methodologies of training or different understanding. Sure, of course, right? Uh, things evolve, but uh, uh, that, that's, that's my, my experience that has been been working very successfully with elite athletes with some of the best athletes in the world uh, as well as uh, at a clinical level i've had a very good experiences with people with chronic diseases when it comes to exercise prescription i want to get into all of the practical elements of of zone two and we can perhaps kind of further define it but just quickly to close off on this conversation about lactate clearance on the MCT4 side of things and the stimulus to um, to activate the fast twitch muscle fibers and increase MCT4 so you're better at clearing lactate from those muscle cells. Are we talking about zone 4 slash zone 5 training here? Exactly. Yeah, this is where you, you have to stimulate the, 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 the turbo, right? That glycolytic capacity, right? So uh, that that's where you improve... Uh, not only just the glycolytic pathway, the whole glycolysis, right, which is faster and more efficient, right, therefore the turbo, right, but you also improve those MCT1s because, I mean, lactate is the mandatory, obligatory byproduct of glucose utilization. The more glucose you use, the more lactate you produce. So that's where, like, a, when you stimulate the energy system, you're going to use a lot of glucose, and you're going to produce a lot of lactate. And that lactate has to be shuttled out of that fast twitch cell. And, and the way it does is through the MCT force um, and it's shuttled into the adjacent cell. And as long as the, and this is why it's very important. I always say that for, for performance, right? For those athletes, you know, you win the races or, or the competitions in the high uh, intensity levels, obviously, right? But because you produce so much lactate, you, you really need, need you depend on, on that mitochondria of the slow twitch muscle fibers because that's where you're going to be shuttling the lactate into for lactate cleanse capacity as well as for fuel 
right? Uh, and so that the turbo keeps working better and better and better, right? And this is what we see that at, at, at a, as, as an athlete increases performance, let's say at 350 watts, which for mer models, it's almost impossible even to turn the pedals. At 350 watts, uh, an athlete today might have a blood lactate of, of, of 8 millimoles and maybe in one year specifically working to improve uh, lactate clearance capacity, that lactate from 8 millimoles is going to go to uh, 4 millimoles maybe at 350 watts. So that, that athlete can sustain that intensity that before was only sustainable for three minutes or so. Now that athlete can sustain an intensity for 40 minutes, for example, right? So that's absolutely key to performance. And at the same time, for the everyday person, should they do a protocol that lowers their lactate in that way for a given intensity, that again is a window into mitochondrial function, which which speaks to their metabolic health and risk of cardiometabolic disease. So there's a benefit up for grabs here for the athlete that's looking to race better, but also for the everyday person who's just looking to sort of live better for longer. Now, I think yeah. this is really, really helpful, Inigo, in terms of in my undergraduate, I remember one of my lecturers is sort of just bolding and underlining this statement of structure reflects function and yeah. spe- speaking to the importance of you know, specific stimuli to create a very specific adaptation. So I think you've stepped us through really, really nicely the different stimulus that is kind of zone two training, which is mostly targeting slow twitch muscle fibers, zone five or zone four or five, the fast twitch muscle fibers, but the way that these can kind of work together to improve metabolic health and performance. A lot of people speak about an 80-20 split, 80% of time in zone two, 20% of time at zone four or five high intensity work. and, And that's commonly something said i guess within the endurance community is that is that a kind of rule or protocol that you also recommend both for an athlete and also for the everyday person just looking to improve their metabolic function yeah i mean that, that's part of the polarized training um that uh it's 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 been trending right for 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 a while and i i embrace it i particularly embrace it because this is actually what we do um uh, with athletes, um, if you look at, and this is counterintuitive, right? And uh, um, but if you look at the uh, percentage of a workload of an athlete throughout an entire year, it doesn't matter if that athlete is a uh, uh, like a like a marathon runner, right? Or or, or a triathlete or a uh, cyclist who's more pure endurance, or that athlete is a swimmer, right? Or a rower, which is really high intensity. Uh, the immense majority of the entire workload of that athlete throughout the year is in the lower intensities, more in the zone two, in the zone one, right? Uh, and a very small percentage is in the very high intensities, right? And this is something that we can see this very well nowadays. Uh, we have all these platforms where we capture the information, right? Uh, where we see this in these individual athletes, team sports, are a little bit different because uh, it's it's high intensity all the time mixed with lower intensity. But in the individual sports, we see this all the time, and uh, um, and uh, yeah, so that works. That that works, and 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 it also is necessary because if if 
the, the conception that many people still have that elite athletes, they train hard and intervals and uh, intervals and hard all the time. Uh, that's not sustainable. That's not sustainable. And in fact, we really are careful with athletes with when we prescribe intervals because, um, yeah, it, 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 it can uh, put you in a very dangerous spot for overtraining and, and uh, decreased performance. So we really need to mitigate. It's not sustainable. And, and if you keep pushing for that, you're going to end up overtrained. So that, that, that's where like, a, uh, by default, um, uh, and this is, again, this is, this is just been, um, evolution of the sport, right? I always say we cannot be so naive to think that the best, uh, um, uh, uh athletes and coaches in the world, uh, over decades, they haven't thought about these concepts, right? Of course they have, right? Uh, intuitively, I always say a swimmer, right? It's, uh, let's say a hundred meter swimmer is usually under a minute, right? So it's super high intensity. So intuitively, what 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 would a swimmer need? Just do one minute intervals, right, all day, right? But uh, when you see swimmers, the elite swimmers, and in Australia, you guys have some of the best in the world, right? Uh, great school of swimmers. They're swimming hours and hours and hours and hours, right, uh, at lower intensities. Uh, well, lower intensities for them, for us, it's unsustainable, right? Because that's the other thing we haven't talked about. The um, the, 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 the what's low intensity for an athlete and what's what's low intensity for a mortal, right? But for them, relatively speaking, it's a lower intensity, right? And this is what, what that's why they can sustain hours and hours and hours. But uh, uh, yeah, but it's counterintuitive. I understand, I know, but that that's the way it's been the evolution of of sports. Okay, so if we come back to this idea of building your aerobic base. How much of this would you say is influenced by mitochondrial function versus the amount of oxygen that we have available, our VO2 max? Yeah, that's another great question. So, um, and this is something that we have learned a lot in, in the last two or three decades. So um, we used to measure performance or predict performance based on VO2 max, Right. And uh, and it is still it's it's a very good pro- parameter because uh, um, um, it's it's uh, it represents the cardiorespiratory adaptations to exercise, but um, definitely and, and and that's for sure. And this anybody can who who does a lot of testing, physiological and metabolic testing, can tell you that uh, VO two max is not um, uh, it doesn't discriminate, right? So it gets to a point that is so well expressed. Uh, that uh, it, it doesn't make the difference. And this is what we see all the time. You, you see two athletes with the same VO2 max, right? So therefore, um, um, yeah, they're, they supposedly are as good. Um, and then one athlete is much better than the other, right? And then you go at the cellular level, right? Um, and then you see that, yes, at, at, uh, that, that, that athlete at 350 watts has eight millimoles of lactate and the other one has three or four, right? Despite of the same VO2 max. So, so this is why VO2 max, it's, it's, uh, it's a great surrogate for health, of course, and for fitness, no question. Right. But, um, you know, looking, and this is from looking for, from a cardiorespiratory standpoint, and this has been the norm, right. For forever, right. VO2 max, but, uh, but looking now in, in, in the last two decades, especially at the more cellular level, we're seeing that that's what makes the difference. And within the cellular level, uh, and, you know, 
uh, everything happens or, or the, the king of the, or, or, or of the cells uh, or the queen because they come from the mother, we should say, right, um, our mitochondria. And when we're thinking about stimulating the mitochondria through zone two training, are we mostly thinking about improving the function of those mitochondria or are we also thinking about improving the number of mitochondria that are found within muscle fibers? That's a good question too. And, and it's, it's usually both, right? So we improve both the number and the function uh, of mitochondria. Um, uh, definitely. I, 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 I believe, and this is what we still need to do more and more research because there, there are different studies showing things, you know, but uh, I think that uh, in my humble opinion is more the function uh, but they, they usually go together, right? Uh, you see mitochondrial content in type 2 diabetics or obese individuals is significantly lower than in, in moderately active individuals. And when you put uh, those, um, um, those athletes um, to, uh, there, there is this great researcher that uh, was from Pittsburgh, uh, Toledo. He started doing uh, these studies where, uh, with mitochondrial function. That was 20 years ago, uh, but not many people listened to him. But he was lo looking at uh, people with obesity and looking at the mitochondrial content in the muscle. And after, um, I believe, it was like for God, six months or five months of aerobic training. Back in the days, they still talk about aerobic training. Uh, we, we still do, right? Uh, they improved their, uh, they, they, they tripled the number of mitochondria. So in the same way that you reduce the number by being sedentary, you can increase the number of mitochondria and the size. They triple the number and the size of mitochondria and, and, and the function also was significantly improved. So all things come together. Yeah, so that's worth sort of under, underlining that we're not born with a set number of mitochondria that's fixed for life. We can do something about this. And if I heard correctly, if we've lived one, two, three decades uh, living a very sedentary lifestyle and lost a bunch of mitochondria, if we then commence exercise, particularly specific exercise and do the right dose and frequency, which we'll get into, we can actually build new mitochondria and bring some of these back. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and this comes within the plasticity of skeletal muscle. I mean, we're still focusing on skeletal muscle, right? Although it happens also in the heart and in the brain too. But uh, the, the plasticity of skeletal muscle is extraordinary. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah it, it can deteriorate uh, over time for sure, and it will if you don't do exercise and, and something that we see on the outside of, of people who don't exercise. But uh, also it can improve significantly over time, as we see also, uh, you know, from the outside of people, you know. But imagine what happens in the inside, right, uh, at the cellular level. Yeah, there's an inc incredible amount of uh, improvements that happened uh, at the cellular level. So, yeah, and it comes because, yeah, the, the, the body at the end of the day is very wise. And uh, we uh, humans, we haven't evolved to become sedentary. Uh, we are, uh, our genes uh, are still, um, you know, made to be active, right? And uh, being sedentary has been, um, a byproduct of progress as supposed to be the norm. But uh, unfortunately, we've been growing, uh, you know, with this notion then, then 
and then being sedentary or, or healthy sedentary has been the norm and and doing physical and being physically active is is is, is being a control right or it's a, it's an intervention right with the, the real intervention uh for for us humans as part of the evolution has been to become sedentary which is leading to disease you know so this is what i got yeah so a lot of our research data in medical research for decades, they've been using as a control the healthy sedentary individuals. When we know that the immense majority of those healthy sedentary, um, they 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 are going to become um, uh, populations with diseases. And we already we have a, a very interesting study that uh, we, we we are putting the manuscript together with uh, really cool findings of sedentary people who are healthy. They don't have any clinical conditions, and they already have significant metabolic dysregulations compared to people who are active, uh, moderately active, not elite athletes. So we're already seeing that uh, uh, 15, 20 years probably before they have some disease, uh, we already see signatures, markers of metabolic dysfunction and mitochondrial decay. Right, and one of those... I'm assuming being lactate as an early predictor of disease. Yeah, yeah, lactate is an early predictor. Uh, we're looking do, doing this by lo- looking different markers in the muscle, do, doing muscle biopsies, right? Uh, and, and and metabolomics. We look at uh, a lot of um, uh, metabolites that are happening in mitochondria and looking itself at mitochondrial function, right? Where we where we uh, where we do is like we get a muscle biopsy, and we inject it. Uh, we, we homogenize the mitochondria of, 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 of those subjects, and we directly inject in mitochondria different substrates. We inject fatty acids, we inject uh, carbohydrates, um, um, amino acids, and we see how mitochondria metabolize those, right? So we see there are significant differences already in uh, um in sedentary individuals and then also some transporters that I cannot say yet until we don't publish it, but there's a key transporter that uh, um, is significantly uh, downregulated that, that, that can be 10 years, 15 years ahead of uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, that is already uh, a signature and could be a hallmark uh, of this population who are sedentary. That's exciting. Sounds very promising. I look forward to reading about that. Uh, what you were talking about earlier about the sedentary lifestyles we're living and the deterioration that occur that occurs with that um, reminds me of a quote from Frank Booth. I'm sure you you know him or have come across his work. Uh, he said that the current human genome requires and expects us to be physically active for normal functioning. And I think a, a prior guest, Paul Taylor, shared that with me on my show, and it's kind of stuck in my mind. We have already uh, great examples of uh, very primitive uh, civilizations that still exist in our world, right? and there, there's uh, so there, there there are especially two populations: the the Hasda hunter gatherers in Tanzania, and also the Simani uh, uh, hunter gatherer population in Bolivia, right? So they're very primitive populations. Uh, they 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 don't have any contact, or they haven't had any contact forever. With uh, our, with civilization, they haven't even evolved. They have the same uh, um, uh, tools and the same dresses as they had 
you know, like a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, right? Um, uh, so, and and then um, um, there, there there are a few researchers. Um, there are, uh, there are two, especially uh, uh, um, uh, Ponzer uh, uh, and uh, and Kaplan, who just went into these tribes and started to study the incidence of diseases as well as uh, obesity. Uh, body fat percentage, uh, their their habits, uh, how much time they were exercising a day, and as well as what is what was their nutrition. Uh, so those are the real primitive civilizations, right? So um, the rate of obesity among these populations was about two percent. We're talking about now uh, overweight or obesity in our in our Western or not not Western our civilized world, right? Is uh it's somewhere between 50 and 70%, right? Uh, type 2 diabetes in this population was 1%. We're talking that in the U.S. alone, 52% of, of, of adults are pre-diabetic or diabetic already, right? Um, uh, and, I, and, and I always say that being pre-diabetic, you know, uh, it's, it, you already have the disease. There's no term such as being pre-pregnant or pregnant. You're pregnant or you're not, Right. So the same thing with prediabetes. They also have the lowest cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis plaque percentage uh, observed in any humans in the world, right? So, uh, and the life expectancy is in fact similar to the U.S. The problem that they have is that um, like uh, the majority of fatalities that they have, about 70% of fatalities are due to infections. They don't have medications. They don't have antibiotics, Right. Uh, and then they have a lot of uh, fatalities due to trauma, accidents, right? Uh, but only about 10% of their deaths are due to non-communicable diseases, whereas in our population, there's about 70%, right, uh, are due to uh, um, non-communicable diseases. So, And then the, the habits of these people, uh, they, they're, they're walking between 110 and 135, 140 minutes a day. So, uh, you know, the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, American, I mean, all these associations there, they're saying about the famous 150 minutes a week, right? That's pretty much what they do a day, right? Um, and then we look at their diet and they're, they're pretty much plant-based diet. They, they, they're uh, hunter-gathered populations. They hunt whenever they can, probably like the, the people in the Paleolithic Right, we have the idea that people in the Paleolithic, all they were six, I mean, one eighty meters or six foot tall, and uh, uh, and super strong, you know, and uh, and they could hold a, a bear with one hand and a lion with the other one and and and, and eat him alive. Right, that's probably not true. Right, they were probably very uh, slim, very uh, fragile people who were to surviving and didn't have the strength to overtake a lion or a bear or a bear. Right. But uh, yeah, they were hunter-gatherers. They would could hunt whenever they could. But in the meantime, hey, they they had um, um, uh, a plant-based diet, and the, the diet in these people is uh, somewhere between sixty-five and seventy percent in carbohydrates, right? Which is about thirty-four, thirty-three, thirty to thirty-five percent higher than the U.S. in carbohydrates, and they have uh, about fifteen, twenty-five percent protein. And only about 10, 14% fat. So um, this is this is the the, the 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 paradox, right, of these populations who 
have um, almost uh, non-existent levels of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, of cardiovascular disease, and uh, yet they have very high um, 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 uh, concentration of carbohydrates in their diets. Mm. Yeah, it sort of puts to rest this idea that carbohydrates or glucose are inherently bad for metabolic health. That must be something that you, as someone who is so close with the research in this area and conducting your own studies, you must shake your head when you come across those sort of claims. Yeah, and, and I, I always go back to, to the same thing. And it's just like, uh, yeah, if, if you don't have good functioning mitochondria and if you have carbohydrates, that's bad. That's, 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 as I said earlier, that's adding gas to the fire. That's going to make your condition worse because you need to metabolize it. And, and therefore, yes, for, for someone with a poor mitochondrial function, maybe a, a, a more protein-based uh, diet and carbohydrate, reducing it is it's needed. Um, right. But if you are a healthy individual, you're, you exercise, you're good, you know, like this, this population that I described, right. They, they, they do in one day, what is the recommended for, uh, in our civilization for one week, which by the way, very few individuals get to meet the 150 minutes required per week. Right. So these people, I would love at some point to travel to these areas and do a muscle biopsy of these populations and see their mitochondrial function because I'm very sure it's going to resemble a lot to, to those that we see in, 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 uh, in, 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 you know, very fit individuals who exercise a lot and they have the same eating habits, right? Uh, eating a high carbohydrate diet, low fat and moderate in protein. I'm glad that you brought up that point about pre-diabetes. And I think that's another one worth kind of underlining that, metabolic health or metabolic disease and dysfunction i should say is it's more of a spectrum would you agree so it's not as though you go from being metabolically healthy to the next moment being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes so if someone's listening today and is thinking well, I live a pretty sedentary lifestyle, but I don't have type 2 diabetes. What you're saying is, despite the fact that you haven't been diagnosed with a metabolic condition, if we were to take out the microscope, we took a biopsy of your muscle tissue, we would be, be able to identify that there is decay, deterioration occurring, mitochondrial dysfunction, and you are on the path to metabolic disease despite not currently having it yes for, without a doubt and and and, and yeah and uh, exactly and and this is why yeah it's just uh, sedentary individuals even though they're healthy now they're they're the majority are, are going to encounter cardiometabolic disease in the forms of type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease both they're going to have a higher chances of developing cancers uh, there's more and more data around cancer at this point there's a lot of epidemiological data more than scientific cellular data of uh, what being sedentary does to you um, uh, or obese, right? So uh, being obese or being uh, sedentary, uh, it can um, uh, um, uh, increase about 50% chances of many cancers, right? So that's absolutely astronomical, right? Um, but we're, we're still trying to find out that more, right? But yes, we know that um, also Alzheimer's, people who are sedentary, uh, they have higher um, um, uh, uh, um, 
risk for Alzheimer's and, and all time disease, you know, and, and this is also, uh, you, you and I were, you were, you sent me yesterday an article, right, about uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, right? And cardiorespiratory fitness is, is, is highly associated to a high risk uh, of all cause mortality uh, more than any other disease. Yeah, in that paper that I sent you, there was a bunch of really interesting um, findings. Some that stood out to me were the fact that the higher the subject's cardiorespiratory fitness in that that paper, and that paper was looking at, I believe, over 700,000 US veterans, but the higher their fitness level was all the way up to elite, the lower their risk of death during that follow-up period Um but one of the really interesting things that kind of stuck out to me was the authors sort of calculated um, what someone could achieve if they went from low fitness, so essentially the most sedentary people, just to moderate fitness. What would that do to their risk of, of death? And, and they found that that would half someone's risk of premature death, Just again, just going from low fitness to just moderate, and that that could probably be achieved with 150 minutes of moderate intensity cardiovascular training a week or zone two training. Yeah, absolutely. And, this, and, and I've seen, I'll tell you like a, an example that I, it's incredibly inspiring and, and it was even hard, it was very hard to believe, but uh, it's true. So the, um, um, I tested once in the laboratory an 81-year-old gentleman who was world champion, cycling world champion of uh, the 80 to 85 year old bracket, which believe me, it, it exists, right? Which is great to see, right? So anyways, I was fascinated because his uh, metabolism, his metabolic efficiency uh, during the test that I do was that of someone in their 30s or 40s, healthy and active, right? I, it was unbelievable. I, I, I keep that test like a treasure, Right, because it's an absolute treasure to, to, to see those adaptations, right? So, anyways, I right away I thought, boy, you, you've been doing sports all your life, right? So man, you, you chose the right lifestyle, right? And he told me, actually, no, actually, until I was uh in the uh, early 50s, uh I was obese, I was hypertensive, I used to smoke, uh, I had a very poor lifestyle, I didn't exercise at all. And one day I started to ride and, and bike and, and think about life and things like that. And ever since then, so uh, to your point, what you said, right? This was an individual, the early fifties, uh, uh, sedentary, very poor, uh, healthy lifestyle. And then, boom, you know, 30 years later at 81 years old, his metabolic health was some of that of someone in their thirties who's healthy. Wow. That's unbelievable. Uh, hard to believe in. And this is how that that person, obviously, 81-year-old, that's an example of, of what exercise can do for your longevity, right? That person was not on any medication at 81 years old. That, and it was a fit, slim individual. It was hard to believe. So, But hey, this is uh, how uh, the magic of exercise, right, is if, if we were able to put exercise in the pill, right, and take it every day, it would be the most sold uh, medication in, in the history, right? <laughs> but that's another point. That's a, a very hopeful, promising message story for, for people to hear and, and I guess speaks to the incredible capacity 
for the human body to adapt should you provide the right stimulus at any point in time and that it's never too late to to get started so and and, and sorry to your point it's in our genes right and what we said it's embedded in our genes so we have the genes humans our genes maybe in 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 10,000 years our genes will evolve to be sedentary i don't think we'll be around in 10,000 years because we're so dumb in the first place right but if we were around maybe our genes are are they they adapt to become sedentary but at this point we're too too young as 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 a uh, as a race as a species for our genes to to adapt to become sedentary so they're ready to 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 get the ball rolling with exercise anytime i have mixed feelings about that because i love moving my body <laughs> i think it would be a good point now for us to sort of double click on on zone two and explain to people how they can set this up in their own life how they can know that they're in zone two and how much zone two training they should be sort of targeting or working towards on a weekly basis in order to provide enough stimulus to get these adaptations happening that we've been talking about and then reap the benefits from improved metabolic health and just quickly before we we get there you mentioned herman Ponser. just as a reminder to the listeners Herman Ponce was on the show a little while back, so you can go back and listen to that episode and hear all about oh, the heart. Oh, yeah, and yeah, so that was great that you mentioned him. And his book, Burn, is a really good read for, for anyone that wants to kind of deep dive his work with the with the are Zone two, Inigo, uh, let's, let's define it. I know we probably have earlier in the conversation, but simple definition, what does zone two actually mean? So again, I, there, there, there are probably different definitions. Some, some of them are closer. Other ones are a little bit more separate. I, I just have my own definition, right, um, um, that I've been using for 30 years. And, and for me, that, that's, yeah, that's the exercise intensity where um, uh, someone can improve uh, mitochondrial function the most. Not the only one, not the only zone, because other zones are going to always be beneficial. Any zone would be beneficial. But uh, from what I've seen is uh, uh, looking at fat oxidation in the laboratory and lactate cleanse capacity as mitochondrial surrogates and uh, as mitochondrial substrates and therefore surrogates for function. That's what I see. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I cannot define uh, in a nutshell uh, zone two. I think many of the listeners will be thinking, how do I know that I'm in zone two? And there are a lot of different calculations online. There are running tests. There are lab tests, etc. How do you encourage people to think about this? Yeah, that's a great point. So I think that as 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 we're starting to look at exercise prescription for for the mass market and for for many people as opposed to just two elite athletes, right? We're going to see more and more exercise physiology or metabolic laboratories around the world, right? Uh, and, and in fact, it's happening, right? Until recently, uh, there were very few laboratories around the world who, would, who did this test to specifically find out your training intensities, right? Based on heart rate or power output, right? Uh, and they were only for the elite athletes, right? And, and, uh, and, and, and then, then now more and more are popping up around the world. 
And, uh, and people are not so scared to go to a laboratory because I remember when I started doing this um, in the U.S. for health purposes uh, with patients 15 years ago, people were scared because uh, they say, oh, I'm not, I'm not an elite athlete, right? Or they would see a cycling jersey or an, of, a, of a runner's jersey on the wall and say, I'm not one of those, right? No, but this is not about that, right? This is about you. And so anyways, that, 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 those laboratories and those testing, they're becoming more sophisticated. And people running those tests, uh, they're all more and more professionals. Before, there are not that many professionals working in this area. And uh, people would go to their local university. And with all the respects to graduate and undergrad students, you know, they were seen and, and, and tested by them, right? Now you see a lot of professionals who they were undergrad or graduate students and become into this field, right? Um, so that's on one hand, but, um, but there are people out there that they cannot find the place, right? Uh, there, there's no laboratory in their town or maybe it's too expensive and they cannot afford it. Right. So for those, um, and from my experience, right. Uh, I think that, um, the, 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 the breathing and talk test, it's a great way. Uh, and, and I'll explain it. So like, like when you and I, talk like this now, when you can um, uh, maintain a conversation like this, you're in your zone one, you're recovering, you're, you're not stimulating much, right? Zone two, uh, it would be um, like a, um, a hard conversation to, to maintain, right? If you, if, you, if, if you imagine yourself exercising with someone else, you could maintain a conversation, but it will be costly, right? You will be talking with some difficulty, but you could maintain it. Right, not for a long time, not 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 for one hour, because it would be, oh, too too fastidious, right? But you could maintain it. That would be kind of what we see the results in the laboratory, and it kind of corresponds to that, right? And then uh, zone three would be a, a, an exercise intensity where it's it's very difficult to maintain a conversation, very difficult, just just exchange a few uh, phrases or a few words, right? Um, then zone four no conversation. That's it. You know, uh, maybe one word you can say, you know, and then some five and some six. Yeah. There's no, there's no possibility. Right. But I think that, and I honestly, and, and, and I know it might sound old school, but we have now, uh, watches and, and, and all these, uh, algorithms, you know, that gives us zones, you know, that, that the immense majority are, 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 are far away from, 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 uh, giving you the right intensities because, the, the, those algorithms are, are are not individualized yet. It, it'll it'll happen at some point, right? But at, at this point, I really think that the the the, the talk and uh, test is much more accurate than the immense algorithms that you find out there in in all these brands telling you the training zones. So and it's easy to do. And and again, from my experience and the data, the hardcore data from laboratory, it's not that matches perfectly. But it, 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 it corresponds quite well. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's just worth us remembering that there are so many people living a sedentary lifestyle. So trying to remove barriers to just get people moving is, is a great thing. And, and what you've just described there is really accessible to people. Are you a little bit puffy? Perhaps you have a little bit of sweat happening, but you can, you can carry that conversation if you were on the phone to someone, they would know you're exercising, but they could still have a bit of a conversation with you without it being uh, sort of, 
too interruptive. And the good thing with that too is that as you get fitter, you can you can be displacing that intensity, right? So now maybe someone is sedentary and obese or overweight and maybe just just walking around the block, right? <sighs> might be tiring, right? But that might be the zone two, for example. But maybe in one year, that person can do like a, a brisk walk, right? And be at that same intensity, right? So that, that's what uh, you can guide yourself through this simple test, right? Which at the same time, this zone two intensity is it's something that's sustainable for life, you know? And, and, and again, I, I, I also say that any intensity will help. And you need, as we discussed, higher intensity to maintain your fitness and your glycolytic capacity. And obviously, we haven't talked about um, um, uh, resistance exercise, which is very important, right? And you know more than, than I do. Uh, uh, but the thing is like, yeah, just when, when, when it comes to both exercise and diets, you know, I, I always ask people who do these extremes, extremes exercise routines and extreme diets, and they have great results. The immense majority are just temporary because the immense majority go back to where they were. And when you ask them, can you do this for the rest of your life? The answer is no. So if you cannot do a, a, a diet or an exercise for the rest of your life, it's not going to work. So you need to have some sustainability both in your nutrition and both in your exercise. And when it comes to exercise, a zone two is something that anybody can, can do for the rest of their lives. You mentioned some of those algorithms, and I think the most crude sort of calculations that are out there are uh, using max heart rate, 220 minus age, and then kind of just multiplying that out by the various intensities of the different zones, and perhaps a, a step better, there's calculations like the Carvanen formula, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that uses heart rate reserve. If if someone is going to go out and use a, a calculation out there, is the Carvanen sort of formula or a formula that's using heart rate reserve better than, than one that just uses max heart rate? Probably. Uh, but still, the thing is, and this is what I've also learned working with athletes uh, and also regular people, is that the, the, the heart rate response to exercise is so individual. You can have someone with the same uh, age, and uh, one's maximum heart rate might be 180, and the other one might be 200, right? Uh, or 160 and 200, right? Um, so, and, and, and regarding the cardiac reserve, that could vary significantly also among individuals. So I think it's probably more accurate, right? But, uh, um, but I don't think there, we're not there yet uh, looking into, into these algorithms when it comes to heart rate uh, because it varies a lot. And I think that, again, it's one of the things it doesn't represent necessarily what happens at the cellular level. I think that um, uh, the, the, the future is, is going to come in the uh, uh, um, uh, biosensors where we're going to be, uh, we're working with one company with one biosensor already that we think is going to be a big deal at some point. But the biosensors that, you know, kind of, People have now some glucose that if you're type 1 diabetes, it's, it's a game changer. If you're not, it's cool to, to see how your glucose goes up and down. Eventually, it's, it's physiology and metabolism 101. And eventually, yeah, it's just uh, you can get some education, but eventually you will not using it much because you're 
you're, you're not type one, but the more sophisticated bio, uh, biosensors are coming with more metabolites that come directly from your cells. And that's where you're going to be guiding um, uh, exercise in a much uh, specific way. What do you think about the devices? I sent you a few on, on email that you breathe into that sort of supposedly tell you uh, what type of fuel you're using to produce ATP? Um, yes. Uh, so those are very good. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question uh, out there. And uh, without a doubt, it's 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 a um, it, it's a starting of, of 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 a movement of trying to understand better uh, your how your metabolism works, right? Um, but uh, one of the things is that they're oof, you know they need to be very well calibrated, and this is this is my my problem that I have, right? And and this is my my experience from. Um, uh, for 30 years, uh, working with all these metabolic carts. So we, we use in the laboratory metabolic carts who are like a $30,000, uh, worth, very expensive, very delicate. And those are the state of the art and they really need to be very calibrated. So they have CO2 sensors and, and oxygen sensors as well. So, um, and they believe me, they get decalibrated all the time. They're very sensitive. So, and, and if they're not correctly calibrated or they get decalibrated, they're going to give you false readings, which happens all the time. And in fact, the, there's a brand, I don't want to name any brands, but there's a brand that I've been using to do my research and to get these calculations all these years, which to me is the best out there, is the most accurate. Um, and you can see the accuracy very well. Um, but the problem is, is that uh, it's not as fancy or has this graphs uh, or hasn't evolved in 30 years um, uh, as other brands, right? Other brands, they have these nice and fancy graphs, uh, but maybe they're not as accurate as, as the other brand, right? But anyways, but we're still talking about equipment that are $30,000 $30, worth, right? But these devices are like $200, $300, $400. Uh, sure, so some of them, they have CO2 sensors, right? And O2 sensors, but how do you know uh, first, that they're how do you calibrate them, right? And uh, therefore, how do you know that the readings are right? And second, how do you know when they stop functioning? And because we know from these very expensive cards that you need to replace the sensors often, sometimes every year, sometimes every two years, three years, right? Um, and that's the thing, you know. Like uh, I see that the concentration to to calibrate them, you need to to really put. Are, um, uh, oxygen and CO2. And the way they do this, when you do the calibration from ambient air, right, the metabolic card gets uh, oxygen and it has to read 20.94, which is the uh, oxygen concentration. And then CO2 is usually the one that is the most problematic. It has to read 0.03%, right? So when you calibrate those manually or automatically, uh, multiple times you see that the CO2 concentration is 0.05 or 0.06 or 0.01. And the cart, the metabolic cart, allows you to proceed with the test, right? So without a doubt, you're going to have false readings. And again, we're talking about a $30,000, very sophisticated piece of equipment. Now, how do I know in these small devices that the, the reading that I have is the actual one? Right. So that that's 
And, and again, I'm not criticizing necessarily, right, those devices, because I think that uh, they can give you like a trance and where you are, you know, and, and, and if you're burning more fat or less. But I think that, um, yes, uh, I, I, I don't know if, if I don't know the calibration, the precise calibration, I, I, I don't, I don't trust in much, you know, and, and then you go to some of the websites uh, of not all, but some of these devices. And when you, when you go to a website, you see hack your metabolism or own your metabolism, you know, or the most advanced metabolic machine ever. Like I, it's, it's a red flag, right? Because there's not such thing, right? Uh, now you see rings, right? That um, they go to their website and you go, oh, the most sophisticated piece of metabolic measurement you can have it like come on it's just it's a, it's a ring for pit sakes that reminds me of the way kind of zone two or training at max fat oxidation is often conflated with this magical fat burning zone and and fat loss or body fat loss is that is that something that you could clarify for the listeners Yes, and 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 the thing too is like when we talk about this is that's an excellent question too, and I like to address because when we talk about fat max and fat oxidation, we're talking about very 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 small amounts of fat that someone oxidizes, you know. So we're talking about like for example, if you're a, a, a an okay fit individual, your fat max is going to be zero point four grams per minute, around that, you know. Amount. If you're a world class athlete, we're talking about 0.8. Uh, if you're a moderately moderately healthy individual, your fat max is going to be about 0.3 grams per minute. So you just do the math, right? If you are exercising uh, 60 minutes at your fat max, and let's say you're 0.35, you're actually losing 21 grams of fat. That's it, right? In one hour. Right, so there's no magic like oh oh yeah I just I just burned so much fat today. No, it's not such a thing like that. You know, you you burn a little bit, but a, a little bit every day, right? If you, if you then also match this with proper nutrition, right, and 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 stay uh, at some caloric deficit, then yeah, those 21 grams of fat, right, times uh, uh if you do this five days a week, right times uh four uh weeks per month yeah yeah that's half a kilo right so that's half a kilo it's, it's not bad you put that in 12 months in that six kilos that you lose right and that's again that's exercising one hour if you exercise an hour and a half we're talking about uh, uh nine kilos which is could be incredibly beneficial for your health right so this is what i think that there's no magic bullet that oh wow your your fat max People sometimes think, oh, I'm losing so much fat, therefore I can have a burger, a, a cheesy, greasy burger because I exercise, you know. And that's the other thing, too, of, of, of many of these machines or even watches or so, like, ah, oh, you burn 700 calories today. Yeah, but they're not telling you the partitioning, right? You, you could have burned 100% of those 700 calories derived from carbohydrates and zero from fat because your exercise mode or doses was not the right one, right? Or you might have a 50-50 or 70-30. So that's going to obviously impact, right, how much progress you make when it comes to lose weight. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people who exercise 
regularly, they cannot lose weight. And uh, because they say, man, I'm burning 700 calories or 1,000 calories every time I exercise and I can't lose weight. Well, first, in the, you're, you're probably overeating uh, for how much you burn. And second, you're not burning much fat, if that at all, when you exercise. So this is why it's, it's, it's a tricky concept. And it, it's about patience, patience also. Doesn't it just come back to energy balance at the end of the day? So in your in your workout, if you burn or expend 400 calories from mostly fat versus someone else who works out for a shorter duration but also expends 400 calories mostly from glucose, isn't the net effect on their body weight going to be the same despite the difference in substrates being used to produce energy? I don't think necessarily, that's my opinion, um, that there's like a, a, there's energy balance is very important for sure, but it's also an um, energy efficiency and the type of substrate. So if you want to lose fat, you want to burn more fat than glucose because that comes from adipose tissue, right? The thing is that um, we, we're used to also seeing a lot of people doing high intensity exercise uh, and uh, who already already very fit. To start it with, right? So they have a good probably because they they they, they haven't achieved a mitochondrial decay because since they were kids they've been fit and doing exercise and moving a lot, right? Um, but and, and and they you see these people doing these high intensity exercises and they they're very fit uh, and they don't have much fat uh, um, and uh, yeah that, that's uh, and that's maybe the the calorie balance is more important for them, but maybe for people who uh, are overweight or obese, um, uh, the energy balance should be more towards uh, burning more fat and restricting also calories from your diet to achieve that calorie balance as well as to improve mitochondrial efficiency through specific targeting of uh, uh, training intensities. I guess I'd always just looked at the the kind of uh, the the dietary intervention trials looking at low carb diets that are high in fat versus high carb diets low in fat and at least at the 12 month mark and some of this could be adherence there doesn't seem to be a big difference in in body fat and the way that i've reconciled that is that the people on the high fat diet although they're born burning more fat or oxidizing more fat it's dietary fat not necessarily stored body fat but that's that's interesting for for us for me to kind of um think about further coming back to 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 zone two so you've got the talk test um being a little bit puffy a little bit sweaty we spoke about those different formulas that are out there and it sounds like that if someone is using any of those algorithms or formulas they're, they're still going to want to come back to the talk test and and pair the two together. Um, I, I recently did a VO2 max test in a lab and through that VO2 max test, they calculated my zones. I know that's different to lactate testing per se. I noted that there was there's an upper and a lower bound. So for me, zone two came out at 129 to 142 beats per minute. Let's just pretend that it, that is my accurate zone two. 
And you might say that we need to do lactate testing to get very accurate. But my question to you is when I am going out and doing zone two training sessions, does it matter where I'm sitting in that range? Do I need to get right up to 142 beats per minute at the upper sort of bound in order to get the the stimulus that we need to drive these adaptations? Yeah, that's a great question too. And, and, and it's good that you have like relatively like a small range, right? I've seen people getting a range of 30 beats per minute, you know, for zone two and I guarantee you that there's not such a big range. You know, we usually, the range is somewhere between five and 10 beats per minute, right? Um, um, at least with my calculations and, and, and how they work with, for me. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that you want to go uh, more towards in the middle, right? Uh, to be more conservative towards the high end um, of zone two. That's when you're going to push those uh, bioenergetics the most, right? And, and driving to fat max before you start engaging more uh, the uh, fast twitch muscle fibers and, and, and switching more towards increasing glucose as energy fuel. Um, but uh, but yeah, but you need to be very sure that the zone two is, is that zone two if you go in the high end. Otherwise, I would stay more in the middle. So if we are dipping in and out of zone two, does that make that training session somewhat redundant or diminish the, the sort of returns that you're going to get? So if you're doing, say, 60 minutes on a stationary bike, but 45 minutes of that was zone two, sporadically throughout that session you were dipping down back to zone one and then at some points you were going into zone three. And this is something that I think people who go out and do rucking or hiking face because they're going up and down hills. Is, is that a problem if we're doing zone two training? Do we really need to get into zone two and then stay in that zone? That's a great question too. And I think that, um, and this is my humble opinion, I think that it comes to the uh, the timing that you spend at your zone two. Um, and, 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 and like, as you say, it's some people who are doing sporadically zone one, zone three, zone two, um, if they're only doing these for 45 minutes, um, maybe the, the actual portion of zone two might be 30 minutes. And and what I have seen is that, um, and it's one of the three pillars that I see is one, to identify the training zones, the intensity, right? Second is the uh, frequency, how many days you do this. And and the third one is the uh, the, the duration, right, of each, of each uh, uh, session, right? So I see great results with people when they reach around one hour, right? So like uh, if you do one hour uh, purely as zone two, you're going to get good benefits. But if you go and go a little bit above and, and below or, or even to zone four here and there, yeah, you might want to have a longer session, which is an hour and a half, for example, whereas those 30 minutes is like when you oscillate, uh, but the pure zone two is in that one hour. Right, so uh, that's where you have the stimulation within one session. That that's kind of how I see it, and it also depends on your form uh, and your peak. Let's say that you do like a high intensity interval in the middle of the session, and you only do one hour. So uh, if you do a high intensity interval, you're going to have a lot of lactate, and it's going to be there for uh, uh, it's going to be there for about 15 minutes. And as we saw, lactate is going to inhibit lipolysis. 
is going to inhibit my uh, transportation. So you might uh, lose about 10, 15 minutes of the session, which uh, again, if you do an hour and a half, it's no big deal. Like I do that, you know, when, when I go on the bike, I do usually an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. So I don't have much time, but that's enough for me. But yeah, here and there, I, I, I do glycolytic uh, intervals because I, I love to do them and I, they're good. And, um, and now with, with, with applications like Strava, you want to see where you fit in with the rest and they're dangerous. But anyways, I see that, um, uh, I mean, I, and I love this, you know, the side of trying to compete with, your, uh, with yourself, right? But, but yeah, I do this for maybe seven, 10 minutes, like a zone four interval. And then I'm in a relatively good form within in 10 minutes. I'm going to go back to normal level. So yeah, I sacrifice, you know, 15 minutes out of my uh, an hour and 40 minutes. So I'm good. I'm still doing an hour and 20 minutes or so at zone two, right? So, but yeah, I think it's about duration at zone two um, that you can afford. And ideally, ideally within a session that is consecutive minutes in zone two. Yeah, that, that, yes, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. And like, if people do a lot of intervals in zone two and intervals in zone two and intervals, it, I mean, you're, you're, it's not going to be your zone two. You're going to be recovering from the interval, right? And you're going to be still going through a lot of glucose, right? Um, so I think that again, like, I like to, to, to have it more towards the end of the session. Or if you have like a good hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, you can have one interval in the middle of the session or two hours. And uh, yeah, if you can allow, and if you are moderate, moderately fit, yeah, in 10 minutes on the downhill or so, you can come down to like a zone two, right? But if you're not very fit and uh, you want to do several intervals, oof, you're going to be up there. It's going to be taking time to come back to zone two. So in that case, you might want to do an interval towards the end. Which is what I do. So I tend to do 60 minutes of zone two on a stationary bike. And then at the end of that session, not every session, but at least a couple of times a week, I'll do a hit and get into zone four or five off the back of it. And, and I sort of treat the zone two as a warm up. Yeah. Um, in, in that, so in that session. So dose wise across a week, we've mentioned 150 minutes a few times in this conversation is 150 minutes of zone two per week is that the minimum dose that would be required to build healthy mitochondria i don't know i i personally question those numbers right i mean i think i think that we as humans and our health we, we gotten so low right that um the recommendations of 150 minutes you know are in my that's my opinion you know they're 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 probably not enough i would do more um and i think that more research is coming out right that if you do more minutes you know your your health is going to be better and in your longevity is going to be better beyond x amount of minutes which i forgot how many now you're not going to see much benefit but i think that uh 150 is kind of borderline uh especially for for people who want to uh delay many diseases and, and for longevity, 150 minutes, like uh, at the end of the day, uh, yeah, it's just, if you do, I mean, yeah, it's, I don't think it's enough. I think that some, some of them were more than 300 to 400 minutes a week. It's ideal, which is twice. 
Yeah, I think I've seen some research suggesting that there's continued benefits up to 10 hours a week and maybe it's diminishing returns after that. Maybe there's just not enough subjects doing more than 10 hours to get to get a good amount of, of data. You mentioned 60 minutes in a session being perhaps ideal. I know a number of people will be thinking, okay, let's say I do 300 minutes per week. Can I can I split that up into 10, 30-minute sessions um, or does each session really need to be at least 60 minutes in duration? Yeah. Yeah, I think that it comes to, to your schedule, right? If, if you can do that, boom, and get out of the way, in my, in my opinion, doing it continuously, it's better than to, uh, to break it apart. Uh, but sometimes people, yeah, and, and, and I, I have uh, clients and patients all the time, right? They, they ask me, hey, I, I just don't have, I can do 30 minutes uh, walking to work or, or, or slow, brisk walking or, or before work and then 30 minutes afterwards or something like that, right? If that's the case, it is what it is, right? But I just want to go back to what you were saying real quick about the, the benefits because uh, it just came up to my mind. I see people... Uh, um, uh, who are in the late 50s, early 60s, who've been for years uh, doing 150 minutes, uh, 200, struggling with time, right? But maintaining being fit, right? Because they're moderately active, right? But being fit, but always struggling with work, family, etc. And then they they re- they retire early, earlier, uh, if they're like those who are lucky, right? Or pre-retire, or they they work, you know, like 20 hours a week or part time or something like that. And then they start exercising and training in a more serious way, doing 10 hours a week, for example, right? Or eight hours a week, right? Uh, we're talking about 500 minutes, 600 minutes. And in one year, within one year, their metabolic uh, fitness increases dramatically, right? Their mitochondrial function, their fat burning capacity, lactic genes capacity. And, and, and then you see data in people in their 60s that uh, it resembles the metabolic data of people in their 30s, right? So this, this is kind of not as extreme as the example of the 81-year-old person that I told you, but I see this all the time. And it's incredibly inspiring to see that you can get a metabolic fitness of someone in their 30s when you're 65, right? It's attainable for, for those ones who can afford the time. But also, I think it speaks a lot uh, in the in the about that probably we need more minutes than 150 to to be better you know for longevity for metabolic health than 150 minutes we can do better that's maybe the the right way to put it yeah i want to speak to you about the best modalities uh, that that someone can use for their zone two training and you you've mentioned walking a few times here and you spoke about the hard side doing 150 minutes of walking per day i'm sure there are people thinking well i i go for a walk every day i walk down to the shops so when it comes to walking what sort of counts as zone two training and and perhaps what doesn't count so yeah that that's a good point so i think that for for most people if if the if the exercise is walking it's, it's going to be a brisk walk right like a, a slow walk might not be enough to recover or improve that decay you know, it might it might be good to maintain, and this is what we see in in, in blue zones and areas in, in Europe, for example, in the Mediterranean countries, right, where 
people live longer and healthier than, for example, here in the U.S. Um, and they're always walking to work, working to shop, right? Or even we see in, here in the U.S. In, in cities like New York, right? In New York, uh, people don't have big pickup trucks to go and buy food for two weeks, right? People have to live in small apartments, small refrigerators. 85% of people in Manhattan, for example, they don't even own a car. So that means they have to walk all the time to the store um, and keeps them walking, you know? And, and if 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 uh, before that you've been, uh, you've been exercising for years, that, yeah, that walking alone might maintain uh, uh, or, or slow down the decay significantly, right? But if you already have a decay and you want to improve it, the slow walking might not do much for you. Uh, you might want to do a brisk walk, right? Um, and then eventually improve, improve, and you might end up maybe slow jogging and maybe faster jogging or, or something like that, you know? Or, um, yeah, or if you're on the bike, you might start very easy on the bike. And uh, But again, th- these talk tests I was mentioning, I think they can guide a lot of people. Ideally, ideally, you want to go to a laboratory and get your specific training zones and wear a heart rate monitor or something like that. Or now these this, this watches can give it to you. But ideally is that. But if not, the talk test uh, can help you. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the blue zones there. That gets me thinking about the enjoyment yeah. that comes with the way that you're moving your body. You spoke before uh, also about consistency, right? So we could overcomplicate this to the point where someone ends up choosing a form of exercise that they hate because it gives them the best sort of time in zone two. Um but there is rucking, there's cycling that could be stationary, it could be outdoors, there's jogging that could be on a treadmill in a gym or it could be outdoors, there's swimming laps, there's all of these different modalities. And I guess enjoyment has to be a big part of this so that you keep showing up day in, day out. Exactly. And this was part of uh, the sustainability that we're talking about, right? And it depends on your fitness level that you have to start it with. If you have a very high fitness level, as the people we were talking about who do more high intensity, right, and all kinds of exercise, that might be good. But if you're someone who's been sedentary for 20 years, uh, maybe just walking around the block is going to be quite tasking, right? So then you don't want to take on jogging or swimming. If you don't have good swimming technique, uh, swimming, it can be really, really hard exercise for you, right? Um, or, or cycling, yeah, if you live in a mountain mountain zone and, and you haven't cycled in a long time and you're overweight or obese, probably not not, not your sport, right? Um, but you might be doing a stationary bike. So I think that it's important to, when, when you engage in an exercise program, to know, as you said very well, what do you enjoy? What do you think is sustainable? And also for that, you need to be, what, what fits me the most? Is it running? Is it is it? Uh, for my knees also, I, I have knee problems for, or someone might say I have knee problems, so I cannot run or, you know, but I prefer swimming because I used to be a swimmer, for example, a long time ago in school. So I have good technique. I don't know. So I think it's important to fit the type of exercise and individualize it. Yeah, there's some really important takeaways uh, here for people. One, you sort of emphasize the importance of trying to get up to 300 to 400 minutes a week ideally of, of zone two, which is a bit above the kind of 150 minute recommendations. So that's the lower end of the recommendations uh, anyway. And then this idea of of the 
exercise you're doing being relative to your baseline fitness. So the commonality among everyone that's doing zone two training is that the perceived exertion is going to be same, the same. And you're going to be in that same position of being able to have a conversation, but being a bit puffy. It's just that the fitter person will be doing more work. So they might be out jogging at a much faster pace or swimming laps much faster. And someone else might be at that same level of perceived exertion, the same puffiness and the same uh, ability to have a conversation, just taking a little stroll down to their shops. And over time, that talk test is still going to be what you're going to use to guide your zone two, but you're going to be able to do more and more as you get more aerobically fit and the mitochondria are uh, being upgraded, so to speak. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and this is this is what we see with many with many people who start exercising, this is exactly what they tell you, you know, like, wow, I can go faster at the same perceived effort, right? Uh, and I can talk, I, you know, I can still talk. At the, before I, at this, I used to go with my partner or whatever, and I couldn't talk past this walking speed. Now I can talk no problem, right? Uh, so that, that those are the things that are important to keep in mind. Yeah. I regularly do resistance training for sort of 60 to 90 minutes and I wear a, a whoop sort of wearable fitness tracker and within that it it breaks down the time that you're in different zones during your workout and something that I've observed is that during that 60 to 90 minute resistance training session about 45 minutes of of that are are in zone two or it tells me they're in zone two would that count towards my weekly zone two target i don't think so i think that what it picks up is like when you're recovering from lifting right uh it picks up let's say your zones now you you enter with the test that you did 129 to 140 right so it picks up when you get there in between sets or intervals right boom yeah you might be in that zone Right, so that's why, yeah, you might see the majority of the time actually you're in zone two, but but it's a recovery phase, right? Uh, it's not a metabolic phase where you're st- specifically stimulating that mitochondria function, right? Because, yeah, as you know, like when you li- when you do resistance exercise, it's it's more the ATP phosphocreatine uh, system that you engage, uh, which is quite tasking, and then you need to replenish that ATP. And you do this usually by increasing glycolysis. Um, and, and then uh, one of the things that, um, that happens is like, yeah, it's just, but obviously the heart rate decreases and it might be, be perceived by the, the, the watch or the heart rate monitor that you're in zone two simply by the fact that you're um, um, decreasing. But I think that in my humble opinion, that, that, um, that resistance days obviously are really important to do. Um, uh, but I think that is something that you need to isolate, right? So it's like, okay, this is my days for resistance training, or I'm just going to isolate the session completely from the rest, or I'm going to do zone two as, as a warm up, for example. And at the end, I'm going to do resistance training, or I'm going to do resistance training in the morning and zone two in the afternoon, whatever. But I think they need to be isolated. In a perfect world, where would we position zone two? training i know there's some discussion around 
are you able to stress the mitochondria more if you're doing your zone two training in a fasted state or perhaps you're following a high fat, low carb um, diet? Are these strategies that would allow you to increase fat oxidation and sort of further stress um, the mitochondria to get those adaptations that we're trying to achieve or unlock? Possibly, possibly. I am, I'm definitely open to that, but I think we need to be careful because when you tell people to fast and exercise, it can be a double-edged sword, right, where people can um, overdo it and become catabolic. So they really have to manage their intensity and their frequency very well. But, uh, yeah, it could, it could stimulate mitochondrial uh, fat oxidation. Although, yeah, we, we have to be careful with that. I, I think that uh, the, the truly way to improve fat oxidation is to improve mitochondrial function first rather than doing in a fasting state or restricting carbohydrates. Uh, there, there are a lot of, you know, anecdotal data and even some scientific articles showing how fasting increases fat oxidation in the laboratory, right? Um, well, that, that's an artifact in, in, in my, my humble opinion from 30 years doing this testing because one of the things that happens if you are fasted and or you, you have, you've been restricting carbohydrates, you don't have much glycogen. So when you do this metabolic testing and people do now substrate utilization to see how much carbohydrates and fat you do or, your, or, or even your RER, then you see, yeah, this person is burning more fat under this stage. But yeah, it's an artifact in many cases because, you know, you don't have as many, as much glycogen, so you cannot burn or utilize as many, as many carbohydrates. And then these uh, metabolic cards function through what's called stoichiometric equations, right? So in order to burn uh, one gram of fat, you need X amount of VO2 and you produce X amount of CO2. And the same thing for fat. Therefore, these equations can be, can be equivocal because if you don't have enough glycogen, you're not going to engage glycolysis so much. Therefore, your CO2 production is going to be less. Also, you're going to be producing less lactate. And that's going to fool the machine, interpreting that, oh boy, he's not, he's not or she's not burning so much uh, uh, um, uh, carbohydrate. Therefore, must be burning a lot of fat. Right, so uh, it could be equivocal, and then we we have seen that, um, yeah, you know, oh wow, you've improved your fat oxidation tremendously with this diet and blah blah, blah. and then uh, two days later, just in two days, that person goes to a normal carbohydrate diet, and fat oxidation decreases half, right, and 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 that doesn't mean that the mitochondria in two days all of a sudden whoa. I, I am not burning fat. No, it's just that it's probably an artifact from the uh, from the test I- itself. So if I wake up in the morning and make a big bowl of oats, rich in carbohydrates, and have some banana in there and some other fruit, and then I go and do so, I have a lot of carbohydrates on board, and I go and do my zone two training session an hour after that is that in any way going to impair that's that zone two session it depends on how fit and how metabolically flexible you are i would say right if you're normally flexible 
it should not impair much. I still would allow 30 to 40 minutes, right, uh, for those carbohydrates to be metabolized and then be a, or be a, a stored as glycogen, right? Uh, and then you can uh, burn more fat. But, uh, but still, you know, the intensity is going to override that, that high, high, hyperglycemia. Uh, so uh, one of the things that you do when you start exercising um, is uh, increase cortisol levels as well and, and catecholamines. And those are important for lipolysis. So you're going to bring down more fat. And that is going to uh, override uh, in, in many instances that the, the, the possible slight hyperglycemia that you might have, which, by the way, is also be um, um, managed by insulin, right? And uh, But there's there's a threshold that we still don't know very well. Uh, like uh, It's called kind of the, the cortisol threshold because cortisol is necessary for lipolysis, right, uh, for breaking down the fat to use it. But uh, past X and um, uh, like uh, exercise intensity, cortisol is absolutely needed to uh, break down glycogen for energy, right? And, and cortisol then elicits vasoconstriction to the adipose tissue and catecholamines, and therefore shut down lipolysis. So it's a paradox that it, it opens up lipolysis, but it also shuts it down, right? So, but I think that in early exercise intensities, I mean, low exercise intensities, um, you can override the effects of having a banana, for example. Are there any nutritional or supplementation recommendations that are evidence-based that can help improve someone's zone two pace or the adaptations that they derive from zone two training? I, I'm, I'm not aware of you know, of uh, science-based that I, that at least I believe, you know, I think that the best way to improve is exercise. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I think. Um, yeah. Have you heard of a compound called urolithin A? <laughs> I've seen some, some marketing in just the recent months, but maybe over the last year or so. And uh, I quickly researched it ahead of today's conversation. I really didn't know much about it, but it, it seems to be a compound that we uh, or our bacteria in our gut naturally produce from certain polyphenols found in berries and pomegranates, etc. And I looked up online some of the, the sort of more popular brands, and I won't mention brands here, that are promoting this product and you know some of the claims are that this postbiotic will energize cells increase muscle strength that it's a molecule that will activate mitophagy which we haven't spoken about but to my knowledge is kind of the clearance of dysfunctional mitochondria is do you have a view on urolithin a is that something that you've you've sort of looked at at all well, not 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 a whole lot, but I but I think like yeah, it's just I I, I I I yeah, I don't have much knowledge about it to tell you, but uh, but I, I I'll be uh, still uh, I will doubt about the the big benefits of of, of these supplements, right? I, I I really yeah, I I don't buy the whole idea that one supplement is going to really make a difference in in um, mitochondrial function or or is going to alter. Uh, you know the, the epigenetics. You know, like I, I really, I really, I really doubt it. You know, um, 
you know, like there, there's like one recent one that is now the, the, the big deal, although yeah, I think it, it's, it's now on the slope down. There is a um, um, uh, NMN, right? Mm-hmm. Or NMR, like a yeah, nicotinamine uh, mononucleotide, right? Which is a um, uh, like a precursor of uh, NAH, NAD, right? Uh, because as, as we age, NAD levels in the cells, they tend to decrease. Um, and therefore, the supplement uh, is going to, it's a precursor for of NAD and it's going to increase and therefore the cellular function, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, I don't know. I, I've seen people seeing, saying, oh my gosh, since this, I, I am the strongest person in the world. Uh, I, I've beaten all the records. I feel amazingly strong. And uh, one month or two months later, they don't tell you that anymore or six months later, right? So I think there's a lot of placebo uh, involved in many of these things. And in fact, we, we haven't published it because it's a small sample. But um, for cancer, uh, we have seen that uh, NAD, for example, um, can accelerate glycolysis because NAD, um, um, uh, it's, it's a big part of uh, the glycolytic pathway that is utilized uh, by cancer cells, right? So we did this experiment with mice where we uh, we implanted um, um, uh, aggressive tumors. Uh, it was like a uh, um, um, triple negative uh, breast cancer tumor. And uh, one group of mice, we, we didn't, we gave them placebo, right? And the other one, we gave them the uh, men. And uh, yeah, within within 21 days, they, the growth of the tumor was 15% higher uh, in the uh, in the uh, in, in in the group with the supplement, right? So I'll be cautious about this because can that fuel uh, tumor growth? If you have a small tumor, can you feel with that? We don't know. I think we need uh, evidence more. Um, it's like people taking also these longevity drugs to improve uh, from mitochondrial function to live uh, 20 years longer and, and 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 or get rid of diabetes, right? Which is rapamycin, right? So rapamycin is a it's a key. Uh, it's part of a key pathway um, um, uh, for cell growth and proliferation, right? And um, there are a lot of uh, uh, negative and, and, and positive feedbacks in those pathways. And I would like to say, don't don't mess up with mother nature and biology if you're healthy, right? Uh, because what if you're taking this uh, supplement and this is going to dysregulate another one? that is going to take to a complete dysregulation of that pathway and lead to a disease down the road, like could be the case of uh, NAD supplementation, right? Uh, this regulates even more probably or could, could do that. I'm not saying this because yeah, we need a lot of research on both sides. Right. So uh, but yeah, I'm, 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 uh, yeah, I can, I can, uh, yeah, I, I think that we have to be careful with, 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 with some of these supplements which more and more are sophisticated and can get to can really do biological actions more than just having like the typical vitamin C or you know or or, or vitamin uh, A or, or even D right I think that now some supplements can be very targeted you know specific. Yeah, I'm glad that you flagged that. It's a reminder to kind of remain cautious when new supplements enter the the market and there's not a lot of long-term data on them. Is it frustrating for you that the longevity sort of science community, um, I mean, clearly 
mitochondrial dysfunction has been identified as, a, as one of the hallmarks of aging. But a lot of the focus on addressing that has been through the use of various compounds. And I certainly haven't seen many scientists from this field talking about the enormous benefits that are up for grabs with very specific exercise, namely zone two. Do you wish that was more uh, front and center or prime time? Yeah, I, I definitely think that um, exercise is, is definitely uh, way much more powerful than any of these supplements or combos, right? Um, and, uh, and it's very healthy. Uh, the effects of um, uh, exercise, they're, they're like more and more research showing at the molecular cellular level and the exerkines, uh, which are little vesicles produced by skeletal muscles that uh, they, they go to many organs and, and, they, and they can keep disease at bay. This is something that no other supplement can do. And as uh, I was mentioning, some supplements are so specific, they, they, they are so, they target some pathways. They're very important for cellular cycle and cellular growth um, that we might not want to touch if we're healthy, you know, uh, because that might, might dysregulate the whole pathway or the pathways, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of money involved with this. There's, there's weak science. Uh, there's science done with uh, mice who tend to live two years only. And they say, oh, they live three, three months more. Therefore, could be 10 years more for a human. Uh, it's, it's a different ballpark. And I remember one of the supplements that came out, uh, resveratrol, right? That uh, uh, it came out 30 years ago or something like that uh, in life, right? Because it was shown that mice who were taking resveratrol every day, they would live longer and therefore this is going to be the best or most important longevity. That's when kind of the first longevity supplements start to come out, right? Now, the people who were 50 years old, 30 years ago, taking resveratrol, they haven't lived 20, 30, 40 years more, I guarantee you, right? And it faded away, you know, and like the same way that most supplements uh, will fade away. But exercise will continue. But again, that's what I was saying. If we could encapsulate the benefits of exercise in appeal, yeah, that would be the most uh, sold drug ever in history. Everybody would jump on it. Okay, to summarize things here for the listeners before we let them go, I think two of the, the most important things that we've spoken about when it comes to metabolic health is firstly um, being good at converting chemical energy from our food into mechanical energy, which requires healthy mitochondria. And the best stimulus for building healthy mitochondria being this zone two training that we've spoken about and trying to get to sort of three to 400 minutes of that per week. And then another important part of metabolic health being the storage of energy, particularly fat in the right place, which means storing fat subcutaneously rather than sort of between or within organs, which comes back to partly someone's personal fat threshold, um, but really will be achieved by finding a way of eating that leaves you feeling satisfied, uh, full without needing excessive calories beyond your energy requirements so that you don't get into that state of energy toxicity. Um, and that the zone two training um, doesn't 
mean or shouldn't get in the way of other important forms of training. So you still want some zone five, four, five high intensity work. We spoke about how the two of those kind of work together to help you better clear lactate. And of course, resistance training as well. Was there anything that we didn't discuss today or perhaps that we we spoke about briefly that you kind of wanted to add to? So no, I, I think you, uh, you su- uh, summarized things very well. Uh, you, you did a, a great job at uh, summarizing everything that we've been discussing too and, and, and breaking down every single aspect of our podcast. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate it. Um, I just think that maybe just the thing that I would add is, is like uh, there's a lot of hype around Zoom 2 that f- maybe people are getting like, because in our society, how society is, t- people are taking things to the extremes. And uh, that now for some people, everything is Zone 2 when it's not, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and believe me, I, I've been doing Zone 2 for, for 30 years with my athletes and, and patients as well. But uh, there are more than that. And as you said very well, you know, there are other intensities that are necessary to do. And uh, um, uh, all other forms of exercise like resistance training, right? That Zone 2 is not a panacea of, 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 of health and everything. You know, it's a very important part, I, I think. And I, I believe it strongly. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just like we, we, we have to still be on track that, there are other things, you know, that you can do. Um, it's like in nutrition. We cannot say that one nutrition is the best and that's it. Uh, no, I think that, you know, could be better than others, right? But I think that, um, yeah, we need to do things in moderation also. We didn't discuss this, but it kind of comes to mind now. Zone 3 and Zone 4 are often considered or said to be no man's land or, or junk volume is that an oversimplification and do zone three and zone four have a place within someone's cardiovascular training sort of regime i don't think so i think that uh they both are going to be good zones right and and again it depends on how much time you have you know for example with my athletes the the world-class cyclists for example that they train you know 22 to 27 hours a week right so they have a lot of sessions of zone two, but they also have a lot of time they spend, uh, not as much in zone two, obviously, but they, they spend sessions specifically at zone four and even zone three, right? Uh, which are necessary also for, for performance to improve those, especially zone four, as we discussed, those glycolytic pathways and the MCT4s. Um, uh, for people who don't have more than uh, five hours, six hours a week, um, you know, I, I, I would recommend more to focus on the zone two and, uh, and, and on the zone four, um, you know, either at the end of a zone two session or maybe dedicating, if you exercise four days a week, uh, you can do another two days on your own or one day, uh, all out. Right. But, uh, but I, I would maybe isolate those two points, those two zones, zone two and zone four, I think they're quite important. Uh, one for the glycolytic capacity, which is the turbo, and the other one for more the mitochondrial function. Inigo, this has been incredibly informative. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for all of your work, your research, your contribution to to science. I think we'll have to get you back on to to continue the conversation. I'm sure the community is going to 
come come back to me with a number of, of questions. So perhaps next time I'm in Colorado, um, I might actually be there later this year. I have some friends that live at, in Boulder. Oh. So perhaps we could uh, continue the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's meet. Whenever you're here, let me know. I'll be happy to, uh, to meet for lunch or coffee. Absolutely. And let me know. And yeah, it's it's. Uh, thank you, thank you for in- inviting me to your show, uh, your podcast. I'm uh, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you also for your uh, contributions, uh, uh, because it's very important that uh, people like you are uh, really uh, sending the message, you know, and that uh, which is huge and really really important. Then from you know something that uh, scientists and clinicians are not great are doing that. Right, uh, but uh, people like you, your with your science background, of course, uh, your understanding and your your research, it's 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 important that that your contributions uh, are, are 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 well well noted for sure. Thank you. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.